Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media production, and our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we're having a bit of a lab on the MixPre. Uh, we a lot of us use mixed pre's, <laughs> so we're going to talk about them, uh, talk about how we use them, um, and answer your questions. Um, we might have a special guest here to help us along with that, so stay tuned for that. Um, and uh, we have a great audio crew here, Mickey, and many of our other audio folks are here. So if you've got audio questions, this is also a good uh, day to ask those. Let's go ahead and jump into those questions. Bill, what do we have? Our first one comes from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. He says, how do I catch, how does anyone catch a deep faker? Will we need zero-tolerance policies or a little common sense? Do labels ever lie? And he's got a link there to an article about this. Go ahead, John. This is one of the arms races that's going on right now. Uh, DeepMind, uh, within the last two months, has released some pretty uh, sophisticated algorithms to authenticate imagery. And think about using the blockchain and or a certificate system, a PKI system for, for imagery moving forward. So it's going to be an arms battle moving forward. Go, Jeff. Yeah, and there's so much here. I mean, first of all, who is the you and we in terms of policy? Uh, you know, YouTube, like the article link there, YouTube can have a policy that's different than, of course, law. You know, there's there's fair use, there's parody and things like that in law. So that's very, very different and difficult there. But as the article points out, I mean, we're already way past the phase where many things are already indistinguishable. They are based in using real footage, so barring tokens and things that might identify digital watermarks. Um, but that being said also, where is the line? I mean, so much of what we use, maybe I have a, a lower third that was quote-unquote AI generated, or maybe we're using things like uh, Adobe... Um, uh, Photoshop filled to build out our set. Um, you know, if someone is um, uh, with a recorded video using something like Descript to just correct a few little words, like you couldn't hear one word, so they use it to regenerate and correct one word. W where is the line of what's okay and what's not? It's a, a very tough problem that will not be solved anytime soon. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Mitchell. I'm with Jeff. I agree. I think we've crossed that line where from this point forward for the rest of time, we're not going to be able to trust the information we see or hear. And I'm thinking that maybe at some point they're going to add a what we might call a truthiness uh, app to everything we see. And it's going to have a little meter that goes back and forth that determines how truthful is this image? Is it a real image? Is what they're saying real? And just a little thing that rolls back and forth. Stephen Colbert probably the first to use it. Go ahead, Chris. Alex, you've you've spent you've made a career out of doing effect shots. Do you think that if you're diligent, do you think that if you're um, critical, like really critical, do you think you can catch deep fakes just by really looking at it carefully? No, I I don't I don't think you know. So um, I don't think you can ever trust a single image. Ever. Totally agree. And I don't think you could have a year ago or five years ago or a hundred years ago. You know, the sure. fact that we, you know, we can, we can look at these as entertaining, but they are all lies, you know, and, and they are, and they lie in different ways. So like when we're on a, I've talked about this in the past, 
if I'm at a if I'm at a shoot and I'm supposed to I'm, and I am supposed to cover the protest um, from the point of view of the protesters, and 20 people show up, I'm going to take my camera and raise it up, and I'm going to shoot down on it. It's going to look like it's full. And if I'm there to I'm against the protesters, I widen my lens. And I shoot the fact that show them that they're a little spot on a big, in a big park. You know, that is both of those are the truth and both of those are lies. You know, and the thing mm-hmm. is, is that, and so the, the, how we frame those things and we have this thing like the image has to be real. It, is, it has never been real. And, and, you know, and the thing is, is that we've been making this stuff up for a long time. We finally got to a point where someone actually admitted that, that Lee Harvey Oswald didn't kill JFK by himself. That was a conspiracy theory 20 years ago. And it just over this last week, they've just went, well, maybe he did. Really? <laughs> maybe he did. I need to pay attention <laughs> like, more to the news. Yeah, yeah. So they're like, they're like eh, you know, and people have been, you know, like when it was, a, it was a crazy conspiracy theory for a long time. Yeah, you were, and that, you were, that most you people were didn't a believe. job if you believe that. Yeah, you were sure. a nut job. You were like, oh, you know, but that, and, and let's be clear. They knew that. We had people who knew that on the day it happened. You know, and then they treated everybody like a nut job <laughs> for 50 years. Um, and so, so we have to remember that I, I only bring that up because there's many things. That the reason conspiracy theories survive is because people lie. You know, if they just told the truth, you know, about what was happening and, and, and they decide people can't handle the truth. People don't want to show the truth. People don't want to ever. And there's a lot of conspiracy theories that, are not, that actually are a product of nut jobs. But the reason that they survive is because is because they because the government and 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 big press and big companies and just regular people you know want to shade this all their direction or want to hide what actually happened and then we then we can't believe anything but we haven't been able to do that for a very long time you know like like you know and so so we just want to make sure that we're clear that this is not there's nothing i mean no one most people didn't know that that uh, that roosevelt uh, had a wheelchair i mean you know like like the press protected that you know so these are all lies <laughs> like you know so so the thing is is that is that we we need to understand that we've been lying for a long time probably the history of the world um you know when they when they put in the stories in you know they cut them into stone in the in the uh you know in egypt those were lies too you know so yeah. so i just want to make sure we're clear like we have this thing like suddenly everything changed nothing's changed and you can't trust anything that you see and you need to be looking for multiple points of reference you know, you triangulate this the same way you triangulate GPS, the same way you triangulate photogrammetry, the same way you define the truth. You need multiple non-agreeing points of view, you know, that, that, that don't overlap 90% or 80%. You need them to overlap 30% and you need many of them to overlap. Then you might know a better, have a better view of the truth. You know, Speaking of triangulation, on yesterday's show, we were, when we were dissecting the Apple event and we were looking at the interior photo uh, image of um, that, it was like a craftsman style home, and you guys were yeah. talking about you know the the ceiling and look the ceiling isn't right, and I just looked at it. And I go, my brother has a ceiling that looks just like that in his craftsman house. This is not a set; it's absolutely real. And the very next shot is like, oh, I was wrong. <laughs> that, 
<laughs> I mean, I, I thought I'm sitting here going, Alex, you're off your rocker. That is a real. Oh, I was wrong again. Digital <laughs> photography is going to going to be yeah. a thing. Someday. But, but I, you know, I think I, I think I, I actually will argue that we have more truth now because we have cell phones than we've ever had in the past. So the fact that we have body cams and cam and cams on our motorcycle and our, our cars and our and our cell phones, we see more of the truth than we ever saw before when there was three networks that made a decision about what we were going to talk about and they were all having drinks with the folks that were they were reporting on and everything else. I think that that we have more truth now. And and again, AI is going to make it harder, um, you know, to to do that. But I think that's great. I think that I think people not trusting it going, well, I'd have to see it in a couple places before I believe it. Super useful. Yeah, good, Courtney. Yeah, it's going to be tough. The uh, uh, I've been reading over the SAG after a letter of agreement uh, that is going out for the vote. And a huge amount of that letter of agreement is concerning AI and what 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 can be used, what can't be used, synthetic generative AI, you know, whether it can be used to generate a character that is not derivative of an existing actor, you know, and <clears throat> these, and these uh, yes, as long yeah. as it's not identifiable, as long as that yeah. actor's, you know, stuff was not used. And of course they said this only applies to uh, this does not apply to non-human actors, non-human characters. In other words, you know, CGI-generated monsters, free to use, uh, but uh, even if they're voiced by somebody, you know, human. Right. But, uh, yeah, it's just, you know, paragraph after paragraph after paragraph, you know, you can use this scan, you can use for background actors, you can use this many, you can use, right. you know. <clears throat> it It's the details are just overwhelming and... Uh, to abide by them is going to be difficult once that film is made uh, to determine whether the the rules were followed or not. You know, yeah. it's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting. But I just think that I I think everyone trying to figure out a way to validate images is going to be uh, just a. I mean that that's an arms race that no one's going to win. <laughs> like, you know, like you know, that's not. It's just going to keep on getting better, and and it's going to get better faster than you can validate it. Go ahead, Chris. By the way, it wasn't fifty years. It's been sixty years. I was right. 60 years old. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Next I made question. A movie. I made a movie about that. Too. You did make a movie about that. And you know, it turns out that they treated Oliver Stone like he was, I treated, I'll be honest, I treated Oliver Stone like he was crazy. I, I still do. But, but, but that movie wasn't as off as it sounds. Well, I, I worked on one called Flashpoint that was about the conspiracy theory oh. the behind the scene too. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. Bill? Jason Robert Shaw, Sarasota, Florida, is up next. Experiences using Axis Carts from Innovative. I'm building a mobile cart for live virtual museum trips. Three wheels better than four for tight spaces, stability, alternatives to Innovative. I'll go ahead, Bill. I've had three or four different production carts over time, and here are the things that I would think is important. Number one, the width of the cart. Uh, they, in Hollywood, there's a term doorway dolly. They were things designed to get through a door, and if you have something that's inside standard door things, which are usually 36 or 32 inches wide, in old houses, sometimes you go down to like 28 or something like that. Um, but if you can get something that's inside a standard door, it becomes much more usable than if you expand its footprint out beyond that because then you have to find alternative routes to move around inside of some place. Um, that's important. The larger the wheels you can do up to the point 
where they become so large. Like there are dollies that are fabulous. They have balloon tigers, and if you're on sand or loose dirt or something like that, they're great, but they're terrible inside because those tires, again, move it uh, its profile outside of that. So there's just a lot of subtle things. So know what you're doing. Survey. If you're going to use it for museum trips and you know the museum, go in and do your measurements. Make sure that you know how high can you stack things. Are there doorways or other uh, porticos that you're going to need to go through where you say, I can put my wireless antennas up to 6.5 feet, but I can't do them any higher than that because they'll get knocked into things. You have an option here to build one that's really good and works just for you. Um, so pay attention to that. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, you, you probably want to decide whether you want to go vertical or horizontal. I think vertical is a lot more, it's a lot easier to get into tight spaces. You can rotate it around a lot easier if you're in a tight space. You have to work off one side of the cart. You can swivel it a lot easier. Do not go for three wheels because if you have anything that's slightly top-heavy, it will tip over. Uh, nothing worse than hearing the crash of all that expensive equipment hitting the ground uh, because, you know, one caster was turned the wrong way when you tried to push it in a certain direction. Uh, use larger wheels, like Bill says. Uh, you know, there are a lot of vertical carts out there that have uh, bicycle wheels on either side and then a pair of casters uh, on the other side so that you can pivot them on the bicycle wheels. They can also go over thresholds a lot easier because in museums you may have thresholds that are, you know, an inch high or, you know, they'll have little curves up and curves down, but you hit one of those that has a little lip on it and uh, you can tip the cart over, especially if it's a vertical cart and top heavy. So uh, big wheels are better. They go over cables easier as well. So that's my vote. Build it into uh, a vertical and put your heavy stuff. If you are using a vertical cart, put drawers with all your heavy stuff and your batteries at the very bottom. That keeps it bottom uh, keeps it from being top heavy and gives you a little ballast to keep it from tipping over. You know, the, the one thing I find about museums is there actually isn't as many little lips as you'd think because of ADA. You know, so the so the ADA uh, keeps it. It's, it's, ADA is our friend. As lo people loading in, you love ADA buildings because they're just easy to. There's ramps and there's things and there's elevators. Except and, for the idiot that came up with those little bumps at every entrance to a street. Oh You're like my casters just yeah. uh, <laughs> shakes all your equipment off the shelves every time you go over those. And there's no yeah. way to avoid them. Good, Mickey. Yeah, I probably wouldn't. Um mount a, a camera in a, in a rig like this, like a cart rig like this, because it's very cumbersome to move a camera. Um, when it's on a large cart, um, I'd probably have uh, the camera either on handheld rig or a uh, cam or a gimbal even. Um, just to add to what Courtney was saying about the uh, upright carts, uh, some carts to maybe uh, take a look at are um, PSC, Professional Sound Corp, makes what they call the Euro cart, as well as um, a smaller company called um, Blackbird Industries make uh, what they call the Blackbird cart. I'll put the link in, in chat. Good, Chris. Um, several years ago, I was finished with a gig. I didn't want to leave my equipment rack in my van in the hotel parking lot. So I was like, I'm just going to take it up to my room. And as I'm pushing it through the lobby, they were like, oh, no, you can't bring that through here. And I looked at the woman behind the counter. I said, it's okay. These are hotel wheels. Yeah. She goes, oh, okay, go ahead. <laughs> um, point being, you, you're in a nice building, uh, bigger, softer wheels. I always go bigger when I when I have a choice, but definitely look into hotel wheels. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, I've, I've 
had a rough conversation with some people at the Four Seasons a couple times by not thinking about it. And then I got good at making sure I request uh, the freight elevator. Um, yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I was just going to show an example of uh, what Mickey's talking about, these sound carts. That this isn't a PSC. This is a called Pro-Aim. But you can see it's it's rack-based rack width, so you can put rack equipment in it. And uh, it has the large bicycle wheels and a pair of casters on the bottom. Uh, and and flip out these wings, flip out to give you more working surface, which is something you might need if you're going to you know stick a mixer or a switcher on there and you need to roll it into position and then work and then roll it through some doors. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, if you want to browse some, there's a lot of them in Film Tools, uh, filmtools.com. You can see a lot of different uh, carts. They have lots of carts. Um, and so you can take a look at those and kind of browse and think about what you want to do. I would not go with a a, a, tr a three-wheeled <laughs> three base. I would definitely go with something square because as Courtney was talking about and, and I think Mickey was talking about as well, you know, there's lots of shelves in there too. Like you can put things in there, like having, spending all that room underneath it when I look at the axis, um, all that room underneath it is wires and batteries and things that you don't have that you're using up. There's just a bunch of open space. It may seem like it's lighter, but it's a bunch of open space that you now can't fill with goodies that you may need on set, like well, uh, like uh, jam bars. One other important thing yeah, is uh, locking wheels on the casters here so that once you get it into position you can lock it so it doesn't get yeah. knocked or roll away or if you're on a slightly slanted surface having yep. it roll away from you is a problem good mickey and yeah courtney mentioned earlier about the having batteries so down below um i would also highly recommend and i see this quite often with people who have just started building carts that um especially uh, mobile carts that have to be battery operated, they power each individual device on its own battery, invest in a, um, a battery distribution system so that you only have one large battery that you need to take care of, make sure it's charged instead of like 15 batteries that power things individually. Next question. Roscoe Jones, Madison, Indiana. Any opinions on studios now bypassing the union when discussing AI actors? This could result in studios strong-arming actors into accepting terms that enable them to utilize digital doubles as a condition of employment. Close quote, so says HR. Go ahead. Uh, and it's Hollywood Reporter, I think. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Oh, okay. Well, I think in the uh, – well, we haven't approved the uh, contract yet, but it does require consent on, on some of that and negotiation uh, so that uh, they do have to approach you and offer you con uh, to use your likeness. If you don't give consent, then they can't use your likeness uh, for a digital doubling. So. I think the concern is that they'll just they'll they'll ask you if you're, if they can use your digital likeness, especially if you're an extra or someone smaller uh, in the in the film. And if you say no, they just don't hire you. <laughs> like, like, like you know, we're not going. Well, they always have that capability. They can just right. not hire you to begin with. The AI doesn't have anything to do with that. <laughs> right. Know? Yeah, I think it. I think that the challenge will be what always happens with a lot of these things. And and I haven't read the 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 um, uh, contract, but you know, you say no once as a smaller actor. And that word, you know, you get on, you get on the list. <laughs> like, you can be blacklisted today. You can. Mention. I'm just saying that this is another thing that people will start blacklisting is, is that you'll get on, a, you'll say no, like, oh, I'm going to stand up for my my digital rights, and then you'll never, then you just, the the phone stops ringing. So that's going to be. I think that 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 may not have been something that they cleaned up as well as they probably could have. Um, but uh, yeah, um, I think that that the actors would have done better at negotiating a position of you have to give um, give them. Uh, revenue for their digital rights. Like, you know, so it's not, they're, they're putting the actors in a, 
a leveraged position, you know, and so that's the that's the hard part. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see if it, I mean, I'm sure that that's where they got to after lots of back and forth. I'm sure there's a lot of pushback right now on the AI segments of the proposal right now. So we'll yeah. see if it even makes it past yeah. the ratification. Because that's the, that's the problem for the actors is having to have the conversation is the is the challenge. Um, next question. John Fultz in Sealings Grove, Pennsylvania. My college students struggle navigating the internal file, file browsing system in Premiere Pro. It looks so different than the OS file system. Wouldn't it be easier if all programs just use the OS system instead of writing custom versions? Comments on that. Good. Uh, Chris? You know, John, that's a really interesting comment, and I'm not going to disagree with you. However, I think you're what you want to do is you want to teach the students the benefits of adopting the internal file browsing system. Um, For example, I mean, you could open up a timeline in Final Cut Pro. I don't know if you can do this in Premiere. And you can just drag stuff straight into the timeline from your finder with impunity. Um, Final Cut will go, oh, hey, that's not in the library. And it'll make a reference to it that won't be tagged. It won't be sorted. Um, it won't be in a keyword. It, it, it'll just be there. It'll be in a big, massive bucket. But you could work that way and never use the file browser. Um, but there's a lot of benefits to learning all the intricacies of what you do get from the file browser, at least in Final Cut. And I'm sure there's some advantages in, in Premiere as well. So I think the point is, is you want to... You want to find the reasons why there is an internal file browser and then teach the students why they want to learn that. Good, Mickey. Yeah, exactly what the what Chris mentioned. Some NLEs, such as a Media Composer, uh, allow you to set specific permissions for each um, each volume. Some volumes you're allowed to read to or read from. Some volumes are you're allowed to, to write to. Um, some have a mixture of both. Some ha- just have record permissions. And if you use the built-in file browser in your NLE, it takes those into account so that you're not rendering out to a drive or a volume or a network share that is only supposed to be for raw footage storage. So that that's where one of the reasons why you may want to use the built-in um, file browser. Good, Mitch. Yeah, I'm, I'm a child of Bryce, which had the most anti-Apple... Um, filing system on the planet, but it was a great program. Um, there's a lot of things you can do in Premiere, John, that uh, will work in the Apple way. Uh, the drag and drop that Chris mentioned does work inside of Premiere. Uh, the media browser has the same hierarchical uh, file structure. So you can work around it. It's sometimes you just have to give a little nudge in the right direction. Go ahead, Jeff. And I'll just mention real quick, you know, I don't love this, but remember, especially a company like Adobe, they want cross-platform continuity. So they want someone to be able to go from um, a Mac to Windows and vice versa and have the same program, not have it be completely different. Next question. Next one comes to us from Brian in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Can a Mac Mini with 8 gigabytes of RAM run Keynote and live stream with OBS? Go ahead, Mickey. Uh, for the most part, that should be fine, though, Um and yes, you should be able to do that. The reliability of OBS um, on macOS has a you know, mixed, people have had mixed experience with that. Um, Chris, Chris Fenwick can tell us about that. Go, Jason. Yeah, I've, I've got to reiterate that. Don't use OBS on Mac if you can help it. Go, Chris. 
But if you're going to, what I would do is I would run Keynote in a window, okay? So you can run Keynote in a window and not take over the screen. You capture that window in the OBS, and then you can pump it out. Now, you're using OBS to actually, if you're using OBS for actually doing the encoding, I don't know. I, I don't use that. Um, but I do pump it into, so I have done this exactly with this computer, 8 gig Mac mini M1, uh, keynote in a window, OBS to drive it and zoom to pump it into a zoom meeting. I've done it all day long. No problem. Again, don't do a lot with OBS on a Mac. Don't, don't ask a lot out of it. It'll probably be fine. Be careful. Yeah, I would test it heavily. Uh, I would, I, it'll definitely run Keynote. It'll definitely run OBS. I probably wouldn't, I wouldn't try to do both at the same time if it mattered. So if it, if it do, you know, if you're doing something little and you're it's your own little streams, I think that doing, uh, you know, having Keynote and OBS, and it has, some of it is power and the other is just workflow, is that, is that you're now having to deal with, you have both applications that you have to control on the same computer with interfaces and, you know, you only have two monitors and there's a lot of, that. that's a complicated system. So from a workflow perspective, I think that, I mean, from a CPU perspective, I think the M1 can probably do both of those. From a workflow perspective, I would definitely feed the Mac Mini into the, from one Mac Mini to another um, in a variety of different ways into an OBS that was streaming. That way I had a separate control over my OBS and my and my thing. And I, and I think that you, you know, there's just a lot of, it's not, again, it's not a power issue. It's really a workflow issue. You're going to have a better stream and you're going to be able to fix problems. Everything works on a sunny day. It's when it rains that you have to, like, you, you want to know that you had a tent, you know, or, or a, at least an umbrella or at least, a, you know, a thick jacket. So, so the thing is, is what you're setting up is something that only runs on a sunny day. Like, you know, and that's the, and that's the thing you want to look at. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. And last thing I want to mention, it, and Alex, you could do it on a single monitor if you do the <clears throat> keynote in a window, like I mentioned. You can. If you do this, if you're going to go down this, this potentially toe-stubbing path, Set up a stream deck with just two buttons, forward and next, to, to advance the slides because you will have to, you would have to make sure that your mouse has, uh, um, how do you say it, that the, that the keynote is the, forward, is the forward app, whatever, for the keyboard to advance it. Yeah, little tiny stream deck like that. There you go. Exactly what Yeah, that's exactly Alex what I showing. use this for. This is on a computer that What's I actually don't have. do? Um, the green button, <laughs> I don't remember. I had some, there's some reason I put it, I was testing something and I put this it in This might there. be why you can't make OBS work on a Mac. Uh, you don't even remember what your buttons do. Uh, no, but, but definitely have a little, a, a little stream deck to do forward and, and advance because it will work regardless of which app has priority or is forward or whatever, however you say that. Yeah. And, and the, the, um, this little, I got that stream deck specifically to just run forward and back. It runs on a computer that I don't. Uh, when I'm doing a presentation, once I've got it all set up, you know, I have a KVM to that, but once I have it all set up, I don't want a KVM into it every time I talk to it. I just want to go to the next slide. And so as a result, I set that up and so that I can just keep on pushing that as as needed. And I didn't need any more than, obviously, as you can see, six buttons was more than I needed. I'm, I'm experimenting. I haven't gotten this to really work yet, but um, I'm experimenting with this thing. There's just the only three buttons that I actually need. But um, anyway, it's a long story. Next question. Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana is next. Anyone tried the Pocket 3, the DJI Osmo Pocket 3, as a webcam? And how does it stack compared to the Insta360? Go ahead, Mickey. I got to play around with one two or three weeks ago. 
Um, it compared to the Insta 360 link, I I would say that it's a slightly noticeable improvement. Um, I guess because of the larger sensor size compared to the Insta 360. Um, a few quirks. Um, when you are using it as a USB webcam using the UVC output, it no longer connects to the DJI app, so you cannot control it from the app when you're using it as a can you control a webcam. it from, can you control it from anything from the from the hardware itself um, it, the joystick at the moment the there is no <laughs> yeah the joystick um, there is no software control for it like, that runs Oof. on a computer at the moment it's only um, the app which is which is disabled when using it as a webcam. Another thing to keep in mind is that UVC output is 1080p only, not the UHD. The internal recording is UHD, but not the UVC out. Okay, I'm glad I'm glad you got to test it because that saves me a lot of time and money. Uh, go ahead, Bill. Well, just as a general one, uh, Andy Toe, the young YouTube creator who was one of the special guests at the Creative Summit, had one there and let me play around with it for a little bit. And I have to say, the quality that was coming out of it and the ease of use for uh, such a small unit, and I just got to drive it with the physical controls on it, but it seemed very, very well designed and well built. So if I had to go do a lot of outdoor things like that, and particularly if I was a YouTube vlogger type I would seriously take a look at that. Yeah, I, I guess the question for me with that specifically is if I have an iPhone, I mean, again, uh, there's lots of people that'll buy this that, have, that don't have an iPhone 15. But if I have an iPhone 15 Pro and I'm able to record log, you know, a Apple log in ProRes, um, I, I just feel like I would much rather have the Osmo uh, phone stabilizer you know, and use the phone. I think that the phone sensor and the system subsystem supporting it is better than this than the than the Pocket 360, or not the Pocket 360, but the Pocket 3. I mean, I don't know, Mickey. Would you if you if you had an iPhone 15 Pro, would you use the phone with an Osmo, you know, stabilizer, or would you use the Pocket 3 3? Um, I, I guess if if it was for just like personal videos for personal use, um, I'd probably go with the iPhone. Um, but if this was for work, um, I would not use a personal personal phone to record work um work related footage well so but if you, if you have separate. but but the but if you needed to get really good footage the the pocket three is not capable of capturing the same level of footage that the phone is so i don't know whether it's i mean it could be a work phone that is an, an iphone 15 but but i'm just saying with, compared to an iphone 15 if you had one like for me i you know i feel like i i'm i'm now, like all the cameras, I think, that, and this is where I think Apple's going with this, is for me, every camera that doesn't, that isn't like mini film camera can record, un, you know, log, ProRes, or, or a better, uh, and it doesn't have to be ProRes, but I'm just saying that that level of capture has been, for me, invalidated. Like if it doesn't have a super, you know, if it doesn't, like I, I don't, like that. Ca this camera is going to capture what I'm going to, what I need for that now in a way that I, you know didn't think about before. Yeah. Cause I, I still thought, Oh, it's phone footage. And we've used phone footage in production for a long time. Um, you know, for a decade. Um, but, but, uh, you know, but only in like little bits. Um, and now you feel like you can, I'm going to do some captures soon on a green screen just to see what that looks like, you know, like to see like, is this a, you know, can I actually key this footage is the next thing. Yeah. Go ahead, Bill. The thing that impressed me about it is that, first of all, the form factor is just so slim. I mean, in real life, this is a pretty tiny thing. And that that rotatable screen was very clear, very bright, 
We were able to use it uh, in daylight pretty easily. It's a gim- fully gimbaled system, and plus, if you take that base off, you've got a quarter 20 down there. So for the kind of things I do with event coverage, to be able to get it on a, a monopod or even just one of those pull out real quick, because it's very light, very light, and toss it up above a crowd, swing it around upside down, and put it on the ground for the doggy cam kind of shots. It was really, um, I, I just was fascinated by it. If I had an extra 700 bucks and I was going to go shoot a ton of things, I might try yeah. it out for that because it looked looked like fun. And I have to admit, my I bought the first pocket, and I just found that I just never used it. Like, I, I, I used it for the first. I was yeah. in Cambodia, and I used it for a bunch of little things, and I shot a bunch of things with it, and I was really excited about it. And then it just sat in a, in a desk. Like, it was like, an, it didn't really, and I used my phone all the time. Yeah, go ahead, Mickey. Uh, it's interesting. Our minds, my, my mind went to the same place there, uh, Bill, with regards to iPhone with a with a gimbal um, versus the Osmo Pocket 3. And, and yeah, like, it's a workflow thing. They want something you can just, whip out of the bag and shoot immediately or are you okay with having to pull it out mount mount the phone in it and do uh, some very very quick balancing but still balancing that you have to do um it, it's a choice like do you need to be able to roll very quickly next question Next one comes to us from Rion Smith in Trinidad, West Indies. Uh, hey, asking this question again, how can I use graphics providers like www.overlay.uno to give my kit, which is an ATEM Extreme ISO, Raspberry Pi, and a mini PC with two HDMI outs, overlays without confusing key and fill options and also having to get a DeckLink card? Good, John. Uh, you would be able to uh, like take that into OBS. Uh, and then you would be able to like put a green screen or do a Luma key uh, with the ATEM and then pop that out. You can, if you right click on the video, you can choose projector and then you use one of your HDMI outputs from the machine uh, and capture that and do a key from there. We did that for a couple of days before we set up Casper GB or CG when we moved the system from site to site. Hey, go ahead, Mickey. Yeah, exactly what John said. And just to add to that, if you do uh, rely on Luma key instead, your graphics need to be um, pushed up a little higher in terms of uh, the lift so that your absolute blacks on the graphics themselves aren't at zero. Um, people have recommended 7% uh, black lift um, so that you're able to select the pure black as your as what you key out and then the rest of the, um, the, the um, shadows are, are still kept in, in the key. Yeah, seven and a half has, has been something we've used since the 90s. Um, I tend to be a little bit, I, I like to have a little bit softer edge. So I'll go for 10 or, or even 15%. I don't find anybody notices. Like if you don't change anything, you don't show them any other pure blacks, it's going to look just fine. It's still going to look black at 15%. So um, so I, I use 15% on those. Luma key is going to look better for men, in many options because uh, green is going through, if you're keying green, you're you're doing a 422. So you're now dealing with the color resolution. So when you see 422, 4 is the Luma information, which is if you're doing a Luma key is all of the frame, as opposed to uh, if you're doing a green screen or any kind of color screen, you're getting 422. Where you'll see that is um, anything that is at an angle or with a curved edge or any un- unusual edge there, you're going to see a little bit of uh, you're going to see a little bit of aliasing along those edges because of that, and that's what you want to try to avoid with the green. Now, if you if you use largely or completely square lower thirds or graphics, you won't see as much of that. So then you can get away with it. It's, it is a little easier in the in doing 
you can do semi-transparency with Luma keys. So, you know, you can have gradients and so on and so forth, but it is easier to do with, with green screens um, to, make, to make that actually work. Go ahead, Nikki. Yeah, I want, just one thing to add, if ever you um, want to experiment with using a key and fill, two, two feeds, a key fill and a, a key feed and a fill feed, um, with HDMI-based systems, the sync between the, the, the two feeds isn't always reliable, even if it's coming from the same source going to the same switcher. So um, I would shy away from that unless you go through an SDI system that is genlocked. Absolutely, you can't you can't do it with HDMI. You have to do it with an SD, you know, SDI. You don't. The, the, you can get away without them being genlocked. If there's two S, SDI outputs, those SDI outputs will go into the into the switcher, and they'll be fine. But the HDMI will not. Um, next question. Next question is coming to us from Daniel Partridge in Rochester, Minnesota. Is there a simple Zoom software switcher looking for something that can do a clean one to four heads on screen and then out to an HDMI switcher? VMix and Mimo Live are overkill. Zoom ISO is close, but can't combine people to one output. Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, so I'll show you if uh, if this works right here. There's... Um, uh, <laughs> well, I was going to recommend, first of all, one of the Streamlabs, but of course now my it's not showing my desk, desktop. So two things I would recommend, which is um, first Cinemaker. Check out Cinemaker. Um, they have a, a lot of tools to do exactly uh, what you're talking about. And then the other one is uh, Streamlabs. So there's Streamlabs desktop. And it's, you know, they're certainly known and associated with uh, gamers, live streaming, but the combination of a company using uh, their implementation of OBS, mm -hmm. uh, I'm talking through it and have been, uh, actually, not audio, but my video has been going through, uh, always goes through Streamlabs for everything I do in Zoom and anything else, and it lets me do all the picture-in-picture -picture and, and combine things, so it's... I have never had it crash or any stability problems. Um, and and the tools are so simple and quick to build out scenes in any configuration you want with multiple people, multiple windows of all different objects. It's incredibly easy to get something like that up and running very quickly. And, and they also have their own version of a control app that you can run on a phone, iPad, that is their version basically of a stream deck so you can do all that switching very fast and very easily. Good, Mitchell. Daniel, if you don't get satisfaction with a software switcher, take a look, just for the heck of it, uh, the Roland V1. It's available in mm. HDMI and SDI. It's about $600, and it'll do everything you're looking for, um, maybe a little bit better than an ATEM. And uh, Ecamm Live is a good one to, to take a look at there. Um, the... Uh, uh, in, you know, in the price range, if you've decided that Nimo Live or VMix is too much, then Ecamm Live on the PC, I would say OBS will do exactly what you want. And then Ecamm Live is a less expensive version that you might want to look at there. Um, uh, a quick reminder that, of course, you can ask questions through the first hour. And for the second hour, we're going to be doing, a, we got a lot of questions lining up for mix, the Mix Pre. And it will be mostly your questions. We'll talk a little bit about how we use the Mix Pre uh, at the beginning, and then we're going to be answering your questions. Um, so um, so definitely start stacking those questions up for, for, and it's really, really important to vote right now for the questions that you want. We've got a lot of questions for the first hour. So uh, throw those votes in. And then, um, of course, you can ask questions throughout the day uh, with askofficehours.global. Um, Next question. Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado. Hugh Ho on uh, TikTok posted about using iOS 17.2 
to record spatial video for MetaQuest. Is there evidence of any kind of Apple event recorded in spatial? And he's got the TikTok link there. You know, Apple is, there's been some behind the scenes showing larger cameras that are shooting spatial. Um, I'm sure that Apple is shooting lots of tests with spatial right now. Um, and so, and I think that, you know, and the, the format that they're using is a known format. This is the HVAC MV or MVHVAC or whatever. So it's not like it's an, it's an unknown format, but, but, um, I think people have been kind of banging their head on the wall to try to figure out because it's not a full two eyes. It's a hero eye with a Delta and that makes it a little harder to unpack. Go ahead, Chris. At the, at the risk of being the dumb guy in the room, can I just ask this question? Cause I've, I keep hearing this come up, this spatial thing. Yep. I have no idea what you're it's talking about. Stereo, it's stereo video. Spatial video is that's what they're calling it. Space, Apple's calling it spatial video. It's Why stereo. Why are we changing the name all of a sudden? I don't know because they want it to be spatial. It's, they have spatial audio. They want spatial video. It's Apple. You know, they got to put a brand on things and make it confusing. So, so the um, so the uh, you know, like that's what they do. So it's you know, it's it's a it's basically capturing for two eyes. Um, it, okay. I, I will say that it, it, they may be calling it spatial because it's not truly that. The interaxial distance between the lenses is much closer. The, they're only capturing the delta on the second thing. So it's not truly stereo in the same way. So I think that they might be kind of going around that, yeah. And basically what they're doing is they're going to use uh, – I'm sorry, the light's really bad. Yeah, the they're two lenses. Use the, the, the two, two top lenses when you turn sideways, yep. They and there's a lot of data, a lot of math that has to happen there because those aren't the same lenses. And so they have to do a lot of – trickery to get two identical and there's a and they're not only saving um they're not only saving the the, the main eye the hero eye which is typically the left eye and the and the delta they are saving tons and tons of metadata that's going to be that that theoretically will pass through your editing system you know so you can just sim simply work with it and when you put it out people who have watched it in 2d see 2d people who are watching spatial see spatial you know so that's the and so is the, and, and are we talking like you know sorry dating myself 50s era you know red blue glasses no this is only the only thing that you're going to see see this on is the vision pro you know so that's the you know like that's the that's where that's this is be this is your every iphone sold since september or every iphone 15 can shoot content for the vision pro that will be 3d it'll have dimension to huh. it you know and and so People thought, oh, that's not going to really work because it's going to look really weird to have your vision on when you're shooting your kid's birthday. But my, you know, my son's birthday is in two weeks. I guarantee you I'm going to be uh, shooting with my phone in stereo so that when I get a vision, I can see it in 3D. It's my first, it's the first birthday. I'll be able to do that. So, so there you go. I wish and this is why Final Cut will never go away. Uh, Final Cut's not going anywhere. Now, the, the, these are development tools that Apple needs to have. Like it's not, you don't, yeah, they're not, I don't think, I think we worry about whether they solve the problems that we want as filmmakers, but Final Cut's not going anywhere. And neither is motion or compressor or anything else. These are pipe, these are so core to the pipeline of, of what Apple's doing with the vision that they could never let them go. Like, it, you know, so if you think that vision, if Apple's going to work for on vision for the next 10 years, you can be guaranteed that Final Cut motion, compressor, all those things are going to be here for the next 10 years because because they ha they have to have control over the development pipeline for content for the headset. You know, so so the thing is is that so I think that the reason that we have seen I don't have any data, but I my belief is is the reason we see that we've seen a slower development on other features is because the features coming out for the Vision Pro are going to be intense. So I wonder if there's talk about using the um the, the rear facing or the selfie camera and making the phone into a 360 camera. 
Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> it's not that it's it's actually here's the funny thing is I as someone who shot a lot of 360 360 is really hard to be interesting because now it is if you can like get someone to experience a space and blah 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 but really when you're shooting something the 180 is really what all of everything you want to watch is in front of you and when you include 360 you make the whole production pipeline way harder um yeah go ahead bill real quick i'm gonna move, move on yeah, I, I, you hit it, actually. I was saying Vision Pro is where spatial becomes yeah. important and all that ability to track eyes and things like that works in a 3D space. So, yeah. Next question. Uh, Paul Wallace in Hot Springs, Arkansas says, X-Real 2 glasses, Guy Cochran has shown on office hours and in after hours, just went mainstream on Amazon. I know you guys think $399 US is stiff, but have you seen the specs? Lightweight AR and VR with no battery, no neck strain, and he's got a link there to it. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Well, it looks like, uh, and they've gone one further, the, the other ones where you had to ha have the little, uh, I think you have some, Alex, where you have to have the little plastic blackout uh, things to go uh, a VR versus AR. This one now has uh, LCD shutters on the main part of the glasses. So you just tap the side of it and it blacks out the glasses. So it goes from uh, augmented reality to virtual reality. Although uh, in their demo, you can still kind of see through the uh, video. So I don't know how great it is for doing uh, VR versus AR. And it uses some newer Sony um, uh, OLEDs that are about 25% brighter than the previous version. So, uh, I think the problem was we all got excited about the new one and we bought it. And, and then we now have it. So now we're not interested the in the second one. They, yeah, right. the, the, the PR they, that went around they, the first, they, 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 the sale, this is the problem. The sale got us all committed. And now we're all committed. Like we we have the other one. I, I don't know. They if iterated that I, too fast. You yeah, know? they iterated too quickly. You know, like I'm just like not interested because I already spent the money on the one that I have. Go ahead, John. You don't see anything about resolution, which is kind of disappointing to see. But 120 hertz refresh rate, you know, that starts yeah. to become compelling. Yeah, absolutely. Next question. Next one comes to us from James Brooks in New York. Looking to pick up a blimp for my shotgun microphone. Which one is the best buy? Thanks. Go ahead, Mitchell. Well, as uh, Mickey would say, it depends. Depends on the mic uh, that you have. If you've got a uh, Rode, Rode makes a uh, blimp that you can put on there. And even Rycote makes a uh, addition that you can use with it. Um, if you have a Sennheiser, use a Sennheiser blimp. It's going to fit the uh, the microphone properly. There's a whole ecosystem of, uh, of uh, covers for your uh, shotgun out there. I would go with Rycote as a starting point. Go from there. Good, Mickey. Yeah, um, you don't have to go with the the blimp that your uh, specific microphone manufacturer uh, makes. Like, so if you get a, have a Sennheiser mic, you don't have to use a Sennheiser blimp. Most of these are universal. They have a range of sizes of, uh, of microphones that they could fit. Um, I would uh, perhaps recommend take a look at the, the uh, Spacer Bubble from Bubblebee Industries. Uh, that, along with the fur, could handle a lot of... Um, environments that in the past only a blimp could handle. So going with a spacer bubble with a fur on it is a lot lighter than a full-on blimp. Um, also take a, take a look at their, um, their uh, what they're calling the wind killer. It's a sort of a heavier duty um, softy. Also take, take a look at the Cinella is a company from France. They make um, really, really good um, shock mounts and also blimps uh, that although pricey, perform really well. 
Um, there's also a new com- company from the UK called um, uh, Radius Windshields, and they have a uh, a softie that they call the Nimbus. Uh, I haven't tried it myself uh, personally, but people I know who have them uh, really like them. Good, Courtney. I agree with uh, Mitch. Rycote is pretty good. And look for a blimp that uh, has a good shock mount in it. And the mic is separate from the basket that's surrounding it so that it can bounce around inside that basket uh, without hitting the inside of the basket. That's an important thing. And to, to be able to have the blimp easily removable because you may want to uh, – it, it's going to affect their sound somewhat. And the thicker the uh, – the blimp material, the fur, put a furry on it or whatever this, the material is that that blimp is lined with, it's going to affect the high-frequency response of the microphone somewhat. So if you want to uh, not affect your sound very much, you want to pull it off when you're not using it indoors. Uh, so that's important. That it can go on and off quickly without having to completely disassemble the microphone and shock mount uh, to get them together. And also be careful. Some of those Rycote windscreens that have the polyethylene basket on it, they have a r- fairly rough surface. Uh, so if you don't have a sock on it, uh, it can whistle in, the, in a strong wind. It can, you'll hear the wind going across those little perturbances on the end of the basket. Uh, so you have to put some kind of smooth sock over it to, to prevent the wind from getting in there and whistling around it. Uh, next question. Next one comes to us from Vincent Alvarez in Bellingham, Washington. Finally got our first ATEM Mini Pro ISO in the office. What tips, tricks, or wisdom can you share when new to the Blackmagic world? And why can't it natively stream into Zoom, yet it does to YouTube, Twitch, and so forth? Go ahead, Jason. Well, it can stream natively into um, into Zoom, if you mean broadcasting, I guess, from Zoom. But um, my, yeah, tips and tricks, I, I'll... I'll leave you with this. Um, straight and away, um, you absolutely want Mix Effect Pro. It is. It just unlocks the entirety of the um, the super source and makes the entire thing much more easy to address. Um, and yeah, I, I need a little bit more cl- uh, clarification to understand what you mean by streaming directly in. Yeah, I, you, you, the UVC is directly in. I mean, it, it's it's actually I think almost identical to the encoder that's being used to send out, we found out, uh, to be to streaming to YouTube. So so you are getting what you need impact, probably something better than what you have to YouTube as far as um, the latency. Next question. Next one comes to us from Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado again. During the Apple event, a follow focus device, wireless, was used. Could the crown on an Apple Watch be used for the same thing? Go ahead, Mitchell. Uh, the device that they were using is the Tilta Fizz, and it's ergonomically designed specifically as a follow-focus device. Uh, you can hold it in one hand. You can do pretty much everything you need. I don't think you're going to get the same ergonomics out of a uh, Apple Watch or a flat uh, iPad or something like that. Yeah, and, if you really want the best mm-hmm, thing, mm-hmm. you want the ergonomically designed. I, uh, and I think it was the Nucleus um, that, they, that they were using there, I believe, not the Fizz. Um, yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, and a good camera assistant doesn't really necessarily... Uh, you may not have a monitor, especially if you're using the iPhone as your source to pull focus on. And a lot of times they'll put marks on that white ring that's surrounding the uh, the focus pull device so that they can put their marks. Okay, here's where I'm going to be when I'm when we're, the dolly hits mark number two, and here's where I'm going to be when the actor hits mark number three. And they just rotate the knob to the mark that's on that little scribble wheel that surrounds the knob. And you can't do that on the crown of your watch. It'd be very hard to write on that. Yeah, that'd be almost impossible. The, 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 it would not work. Next question. Very tiny gaff, white gaff tape. You yeah. can do it. Just yep. kidding. Uh, 
Chester Sweeney, Las Vegas, Nevada. If a watch, if I watch office hours with the Safari window really small as compared to full screen on my 38-inch 4K Sony TV, will there be an internet internet data per episode difference? I go, go ahead, Mickey. Yeah, this would be dependent on the resolution you have selected within your player, either on the on the on Safari, the web player on Safari, or within your uh, Apple. Uh, sorry, your YouTube app on your TV. Um, also, do note that if you have um, if you are paying for YouTube Premium, you have a a uh, the option for a higher bitrate 1080p feed as well. Uh, go ahead, uh, John. And one thing uh, you can do to confirm is if you right-click and do Stats for Nerds, it'll tell you what your window size is as well as what resolution you're pulling down. Next question. Another entry from our QR codes. This one from Peter Butcher in Sydney, Australia. I'm creating custom GPTs for clients and need to train the model on a range of brand data, including website content. Can anyone suggest a good tool better than SiteSucker to extract a website to PDF format or even to HTML? Go ahead, John. This this is a whole second hour here. And, it, and the problem is it's changing so fast. Just when you get comfortable with one tool, they come out with either a new platform for training and modeling moving forward, um, or or the input side, the vector size on the input size is, makes it really easy to put, you know, up up to say hundreds and hundreds of pages input as a, as a vector as as opposed to pre-training. So so this is difficult. This is not a one two three question to answer. Next question. Guy Cochran, Seattle, USA. Which ma what makes the Fuji GFX 102 a prominent runner-up for camera of the year? And he's got a link there to it. Go ahead, Courtney. I haven't had a chance to look at too much of it, but it has a really large sensor, larger than full frame, and can record uh, 8K ProRes. So that's pretty handy in uh, having a DSLR. Uh, and Fuji, of course, has made great cameras for many, many years. I'm not wearing my Fuji hat today, but I do have one. Yeah, it looks really interesting. I mean, I, I don't, I, I have to admit that I wasn't tracking this until this question, so I'm a little, little uh, caught off off guard. I've only known about it for the last eleven minutes, um, but it looks like a, uh, um, it looks like a really interesting camera. I mean, it's definitely something I'd love to take out and test. It's got now the the 120 frame per second is only H full HD, which is 1080p, 8K 30, 4K 60. Um, I'm not, yeah, so the um, so there's a couple different formats there, but it, it does look like um, it is, yeah, considerably, I mean, it's a big, it's a big sensor. Um, it's really interesting. Yeah. So we'll have to take, take a closer look at it. Next question. Jan Zolson in Sager, Idaho said, did anyone else bite the bullet and order Moments new bigger T-series lens? I'll try to do some test photos comparing with stock lenses and post them to Discord. Cool. Please do. I, I saw these lenses and I was like, oh, I have to get these. And I was like, no, I can't do that right now. <laughs> so I, have to, I have to suppress myself. Um, so, so I haven't bought these lenses, but uh, they look really cool. So um, yeah, so let, um, we'll, let us know. Let us know what you think of them. And uh, maybe put a comment in and give us some links to some stuff you've shot because we'd love to we'd love to know what you think. Next question, Samuel Nordvik in Norway. In the future, do you think that Apple will be able to use computational methods to create a shallow depth of field look in video reliably that can resemble a large sensor camera? Go ahead, Mitchell. Sure, Zoom does it now with varying degrees of success. Uh, I don't like their virtual backgrounds at all, but well, they are doing it. So yeah. Apple should be able to one up them a wee bit. 
Apple is one-upping them, actually. The, the webcam version of Apple's is better than Zoom. Zoom does too much Zoom, uh, too much uh, shallow depth of field, so it looks weird. Um, it, I, I think that Zoom's version is designed to obscure your background. Not to, It's not designed to look good. Um, and so, because uh, so it, it doesn't. <laughs> so, so Plus, the, um, it gives them a jello head. But, but, yeah, so, but that's because, and Apple's does a very subtle, like, I'm giving you short depth of field. As the LiDAR gets better, as the computational photography gets better, you are, we have already seen it from the beginning of when they've done shallow depth of field to now is 10x better. Um, and we'll, we'll continue to see that improve. Uh, will it get to the absolute same? I don't know. We'll see. But, it, but I bet you it'll, it will get to a point where most people can't see the difference in the next two or three versions. Uh, next question. Yet another QR code submission, this one from Chester Sweeney in Las Vegas. The analog Moog lead software instrument in Logic Pro, how accurate is it? I'm going to guess a lot of these are pretty close to accurate. Um, they're not going to be the same as the actual, you know, the, the actual device. Uh, they're not going to have, what I find with a lot of these filters is that it, there's a warmth that's missing. Um, in those in the filters that that you that you just don't quite hear the same same thing, but uh, it gets pretty close. Go ahead, Mickey. And just want to add that it, yes, there these uh, emulations are typically uh, very close since they they do take impulses from the actual um, hardware itself. But uh, I, I think um, an important thing is: are you able to get the sound that you're looking to get? Um, and if you are, does it really matter if it's accurate or not? Yeah. yeah, go ahead, Courtney. And when you're performing, having a knob for a filter that you can turn as you're playing, you know, is really important. It's hard to do that on a software plugin unless you're using an outboard MIDI controller that gives you a bunch of knobs that you can uh, play with. Yeah, and you can do that a lot of times with MIDI. Yeah, the, the controllers and, and everything else. But yeah, it's I, I do find that there's a whole discussion there about like preamps. I'd love to talk. We probably should talk preamps. For, like, there's a lot of discussion about the quality of a preamp, and I'm like, I'm a, I'm a, I just want it to be pure. Like, I just want it to be the cleanest preamp I can get with the lowest amount of noise. I don't want to do anything to the audio. But you talk to a lot of people who want it to sound like a certain thing. Uh, next question. Jack Rupel in Breckeridge, Colorado. I have a Quocom Cam Ego, and that's spelled Q-U-O-O-C-A-M for those of you who might be looking it up. He has that Ego camera. Can I remap metadata to view on a Vision Pro simulator? Not yet, but I would be blown away if you can't in the future. So I think that um, this this uh, um, the camera is you know letting you cap, cap stereo. I think that there's no way that Apple won't have tools that allow you to do that not in the not too distant future. So stay tuned for that. Um, next question. Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. Is the AWS well-architected tool really going to move the needle for cloud production or is it going to serve a niche market segment to benefit? Go ahead, John. These best practices tools have existed on many different cloud platforms for a long time. I don't think it's moving the needle anywhere. Um, it's a good double check just to make sure that you are following the best practices of of a said cloud, but it's not going to make your productions any more stable or better. It's just going to make sure that some basic boxes are checked. You have to have a well, um, a good engineer who understands the platform, make sure everything is set up correctly, make sure you understand what you're paying for. Otherwise, costs can get out of control. Next question. Douglas Carmichael says, I remember going to a local festival where the festival front of house engineer had a compressor on the video playback channels because he was getting video with varying audio levels. Would a mastering plug-in in the NLE help keep audio levels even when editing? Uh, go ahead, Mickey. 
Yeah, I'd say this is a, a typical scenario scenario for uh, playback for events uh, wherein uh, the vendor that's providing these uh, playback assets um, did not uh, run run the the assets through a proper mix or were not uh, given a specific spec. Um, typically, uh, we would run through every single asset and note down um, at what fader le- uh, level or input gain trim. Uh, we would have for each asset, but if we don't have time to do that or we get the assets while the show's already uh, going on, which happens quite often, um, we I would put a compressor there just to tame those uh, peaks. Coming up next, we'll be talking about the Mix Pre 3. A um, uh, quick reminder that tomorrow's just Q&A, but Q&A is full, and we've got so many questions to answer for you. So, uh, so we'll be doing Q&A uh, tomorrow. Friday is the Office Hours website. We're going to talk about as a group, what we'd like to see more of and less of. Uh, Saturday, of course, is, is Q&A as well. And do we do a lot of training and a lot of, it's a great time to get onto the panel if you'd like to do that. And Sunday, of course, is more introspection. We talk a little bit about uh, what we, uh, you know, what's working, what's not working, how we want to handle it. So, uh, so stay tuned uh, for all of those. And right now we're going to go ahead and uh, jump into the, to the second hour. Welcome back to the second hour, and uh, we're really excited to talk about the Mix Pre. Um, we are here. We've got, of course, a lot of our resident experts, but adding to the resident experts, we actually, uh, we're, we're really excited to have Paul Isaacs from Sound Devices. Paul is the Director of Product Management and Design at Sound Devices, and so the Mix Pre is something he knows a little bit about. He's, he, he knows, he's got the, he not only knows where the bodies are, he, he has the shovel. So anyway, so the, um, so the, uh, so the, it's, it's, uh, he's, he really understands it and, and we're really excited to have it. We've got a lot of questions packing up, uh, around, uh, this second hour. I think maybe the most questions we've ever had for a second hour. Um, there is a, uh, you know, a lot of us, uh, here use, uh, use the mix pre. Um, and, uh, and I think just as an, as a side, how many people here on the panel are actually using a mix pre? I just wanted to, yeah. So a couple of us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so, uh, so, uh, and a lot of us have, and I, and I will say that, you know, um, there is having the interface, uh, that has been powerful. And, and for, for me, the big thing with the mix pre, the reason I got it at first and the reason I use it at first is because the noise assist. I mean, it is, I've got, fans and all kinds of other stuff that's going on here and I turn it up and down depending on what's what's going on around me and it's I still feel like it's better than cedar um, and it's just softer than cedar like it's cedar when you turn it up it gets a little crunchy and um, and uh, and noise just tends not to do that and so um, I've been kind of addicted to it there but as we've gotten deeper and deeper into this and as more of us use the the, the, the mix pre the real power of it is all the routing you know the the things that we're doing with it um, I, I know in this group there's so many I think that if, if anyone watched Chris Fenwick's um, you know uh, short on how he's piping all of these different channels in and using you know mapping all of these things to separate channels and so on and so forth that's something that I just don't find in a lot of other recorders of that in, in the form factor and the price point so so we um, so a lot of us use it pretty heavily. Uh, and uh, I don't know if any of the if any of the panelists want to talk about it a little bit. I'm going to ask uh, Paul a little bit about uh, you know has it like is it is it has it been seen as a, as the mix pre line I guess been seen as a success compared to the much heavier uh, uh, recorders that Sound Device normally makes or has made in the past. Well, good morning. Um, good morning, Paul. Crew. <laughs> An audience, good to be here. It's been a while since I've been on office hours, so this is a real treat. Um, 
And I, you know, I'm going to sort of question whether I know more about this than you guys. <laughs> um, <laughs> I know you guys are using this product regularly across like 101 different diverse applications. So, um, yeah, I know a lot about it, but I know that you guys are pushing it in, into all sort of different areas and using it in different ways. So I'm sure you can probably tell me a lot about it too. Oh, oh. Um, okay. <laughs> in terms of your question, Alex, has it been, do we see the mixed pre-s a success compared to the uh, 8 series, I guess, and the 7 series? Absolutely. I mean, you know, before the mixed pre, we didn't really play in this sort of like price market. Um, and, you know, so when the... We, what we why we entered the mixed pre is because we uh, this type of market the prosumer sort of crossing the consumer to the professional in between markets is because obviously there's a lot more content creation going on and we saw that like five six years ago that we needed to get into that um, being experts in recording and mixing but we we didn't really want to enter the fray until we knew we could still provide the sound devices quality. Uh, build quality and preamp quality because we didn't want to uh, compromise on that. And we wondered whether we could um, at first, but uh, I think we've managed to do that. And uh, certainly the the number that we've sold and the diverse use cases we see it in, it, yeah, it's been an absolutely huge success for us. And, well, and, and, and I think even, even we're an example of that in some cases in the sense that, you know, I... We do I do take mix pre's out into the field, but my primary mix mix pre is sitting here on my desk as my audio my primary audio interface just for my webcam or for my web, you know for my zoom zoom events and it's it's really powerful that way you know and so it, it is a very diverse you don't think of it as just a a yeah, field recorder absolutely I mean probably field recording is the the smallest part of it to be quite honest obviously it is uh, widely right. it's better podcasting YouTubing any form of content creation video operate uh, camera of DSLR users, musicians. Uh, yeah, it's across the board, really. So from consumer to pro. And a lot of professionals use it as a backup tool as well. Uh, I think there's many 8-series users out there who have one sitting on their cart or in their bag or what have you. Or a lot of pros prefer to use it for, you know, when they really want to be light. So I've seen so many users using a Mix Pre 6 or a Mix Pre 10 with a couple of... Um, you know, two or four channels of wireless receivers in a bag. And um, it's such a nimble kit, a small footprint kit that people seem to like it a lot. Go ahead, Mitchell. Uh, Paul, I wanted to say first, thank you for being here. Uh, I'm a mixed pre wannabe. I especially want it for the noise assist. I, I, I have done so much research on what is the best real-time uh, noise reduction system out there. And noise assist comes up every time as my number one choice. Is there a chance, just a chance, that you may consider uh, uh, providing some kind of licensing to other people to use that as a real-time noise assistant or uh, perhaps uh, a uh, standalone box that's uh, uh, just getting a mic preamp and noise assist in there? Or is that the mix pre? Um, I think there's very low chance we'll license it <laughs> to companies outside Audiotonics. <laughs> um, um, as you know, sort of like we, uh, Sound Devices got bought by Audiotonics several couple of years ago, and our, our sibling companies are Digico, Allen & Heath, you know, um, SSL. And, um, you know, they 
do a lot of plug-in products for their mixes. And, you know, we've had lots of internal talks about sharing plugins. I can't say what's going to happen in the future, but if if we were ever to do something like that, it would be with our, our sibling companies that we work with. We wouldn't be licensing it out to anyone else. Um, it's, it wouldn't be a simple thing for a third party to build into their their products. I mean, it's a very FPGA intensive type of a design. Uh, not to say it's not possible. So yeah, that's the uh, what I'd say in terms of licensing. Um, in terms of making a dedicated, are you talking about sort of like some sort of USB? audio interface he's, he's not talking yes. about that but we are <laughs> yeah we are yeah. <laughs> well i'm not going to say um never i mean it's a nice idea like a one channel mic pre cashmere mic pre with noise assist on a yes. small little box that you can connect anywhere um yeah i mean that seems like a, a nice little tool whether we can do it at a price <laughs> which makes sense um, cause obviously you'd want something like that much cheaper than a mix pre three, um, which is going for about what, $900 these days off the yeah. top of my head. Um, so, you know, we'd have to sort of make it such that it's, uh, a lot cheaper than that. Um, and one of the challenges there is the FPGA price. Um, and so there's, Obviously, we can cut costs in terms of maybe time code and um, the, all the extra mic preamps and um, maybe some work on the mechanicals and stuff. But the, the actual um, FPGA price we, uh, cost, we may not be able to get down. That's a significant part of the whole product. So I don't know. I mean, I like the idea and it's something we can certainly internally discuss and uh, see if it's if it's possible. But you, I guess you want a standalone box battery powered and some, uh, but you'd also want it to be a USB audio interface at the same time. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Right. Yeah, so. A lot of us would love that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for me, and also for me, it, it, it's, well, well, this is not really a mixed pre uh, conversation, but, but being able to have it remote controllable, like that, that the, that all the knobs, you can do some things with it, but I can log into it and make it go for us. We're sending these out as kits. I send out the mix pre all the time. And then trying to explain to someone how to use a mix pre remotely is, you know, we set it all up as best we can, but then we're like, can you turn this little knob? And then we would like to turn that knob for them. Alex, <laughs> so, so. I, I know we've had these conversations numerous times. 15 years. IP remote control yeah. of said box. Yeah. And believe me, we're having these internal discussions all the time. I mean, yeah. the, the whole of our company is like looking at this field because it's no doubt a, a massively growing part of the industry. Yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. Good, Chris. So you heard it here first, the birth of the Mix Pre 1. Hey, Paul, did, did, I, hear, did I hear correctly? This thing records also? <laughs> <laughs> It it record. Oh, is that what the R E C button means? Yeah. Wow, I'm so glad I was here today. Thank you. Uh, Thank it you so means much. that it's time for recreation. You know, you press that button, oh, and then you're that's what I thought. Like <laughs> that's great. Go ahead, Courtney. He's always wondered what that little red light was for. Uh, good to see you, Paul. I haven't been able to bother you, too, you in quite Courtney. a while. <laughs> yeah. I have my Mix Pre Three One here, and uh, I was wondering, was uh, was Noise Assist developed in-house, or did you guys license it from somebody? And is it possible, is there an FPGA in this that can be upgraded to uh, accept the Noise Assist uh, to upgrade a version 1 to a version 2? 
Right. So Noises was developed in-house. Uh, we have a, a very talented um, audio algorithm designer here. Took the best part of a few years. Um, this guy, Steve, he's just on a different planet. He he tends to speak to you in ones and zeros. He doesn't communicate in English. I'm sure you've all met someone like yes. that. Speaks in op codes, yes. <laughs> yeah, we just told him to go away and work on this algorithm, gave him the specs, and over the course of a number of years, we honed it in. He would give us the first algorithm, we tweaked it. And, but yeah, it was all developed in-house, and we're extremely proud of that algorithm. We know it's not a simple thing to develop, so we sort of feel um, quite... Um, confident in the competitive landscape that no other manufacturer is going to jump onto that easily. Um, and we, we, we've, as you know, we also have we've got a, a collaborative relationship with Cedar as well. Um, right, our eight series. Um, yeah. And that was a very long development. And you, it, you talk to them and they'll tell you it was a huge amount of research to develop their algorithm as well. So, yes, that was all developed in-house. Um, in terms of whether the Mix Pre 1 series can be updated, sadly not. Uh, the Mix Pre 2 series have bigger FPGAs, which allow it to support noise assist. Uh, takes more oomph. Did you improve the, uh, since I only have the reference of the one to work with, which was the problem with the, my problem with using the sound devices uh, a lot of times was related to its power because it, it really consumes a lot of power. Did they improve the power handling capability on the on the two versions so it's a little more easy on the batteries? I'm going to say probably not. Um, performance. <laughs> it still burns through the yeah. burns through those batteries like crazy. I mean, got to get the big. I get out my big marine battery. For, 95 amp hour. yeah i mean yeah we've we've definitely found that that putting the the ac adapter on the back or the or the dc adapter on the back um and then being able to feed it in has been our primary use for it you know connecting it to larger batteries i mean it, you can do it for a little while with those double a's and the little battery but but it's but we've really found that we had to put something more beefy on the back end if you are going to use double a's make sure to use um nickel metal hydrides or lithium primaries don't use standard cells. They last you long enough to set it up. Like like the, if you put a standard battery in there, they're like, okay, we're done. Oh, you, yeah, should, yeah, you should get out of four nickel metal hydros like in a loop pros. You should get over two hours. Oh no, no, I'm saying with the regular ones. If you put a regular oh, yeah. battery in there, it, it lasts long enough to kind of get it set up for the show and then you're done. You know, so so yeah, it's it's uh but the yeah, you get better better time with the other ones, you know. Well, I mean that is certainly a, a a weak point, I think, of powering over uh, over AAs. And if we if we ever go forward and do another series, that's something we'll try and address. But there's only so much you can do if you're still trying to maintain that that functionality and that wide range capability that the FPGA gives you. Yeah, so, no, absolutely. Yeah. Go, ahead, go ahead, Mickey. Yeah, I just wanted to um, show, like, aside from the marine batteries that the Courtney uses, um, I mostly use these. Uh, um, e-smart batteries. This one's from from Inspired Energy and runs through a battery distribution system that uh, powers the Mix Pre. Um, but the, since Paul is here, and I just want to get this out of the way, Paul, when will we see a new 970, please? please. <laughs> 970? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> it's no longer part of the sound devices. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and talk about that more, Mickey. You know, maybe offline. You're always free to 
to contact me directly to discuss your needs. There. It was one of the, the 970 is just one of the best machines. Like, a, yeah, yeah the most. Alex and I are waiting for the PIX 242. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I still have, I still use my PIX, my two PIX 240. I can't quite get my camera to it right now. It sits on my desk and it's still all my screen records and a lot of things. It's still, I've still got a couple of them here. So it's. Do you, um, do you use it as a doorstop? No, I use it to record screen. When I do screen captures, I, I use it because I plug it, you know, I take it out of my computer there. It's, it's, um, it's amazing because you can take the audio from the computer and the mic and put it into the different channels and everything else. It's still, it's, it's one of the best pieces it's of hardware. It's always within arm's reach. Just yeah, exactly. Know. Exactly. Um, yeah. And just to show people a little bit, I mean, I'm sure that all of us can do this, but we'll, but you know, one of the things that, that I think is really powerful is this ability to have like control over this um, in a, in a very specific way. So, so for instance, for, for me, you know, one of the things that I use this for, and we'll get into a lot of different use cases, but if you look at this here, by the way, this is the mix, the, the mix pre two, which is another one of my favorite pieces of hardware ever made. Um, and I use that to route another computer into the mix pre when I need it, um, as a safety. It's like, I have Dante and all kinds of other stuff, but if Dante doesn't work, I want to make sure I can get it out there. Anyway, point is, is that what I'm doing here, and this is really designed by Mickey more than me, um, is what you're seeing here is my, I'm actually coming in on the third channel. Um, but, um, if someone talks a little bit, you'll see what happens on the first channel. Hello, 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 testing one, two. So that first channel is coming in, um, from, uh, uh, from the computer. So I have, you know, so I'm mapping the return back to that first channel. And there's two big advantages of that. One is I can record it. So if I want to have a two-way conversation, record both of them, I can record those on separate channels. Um, but the other thing is, is that I can, I can attenuate how this, how this sounds. Um, you know, so I can have, I can control the mix to my head. So, because I'm listening, of course, I'm listening to myself. I'm also listening to the remote and I can decide how loud I want myself versus the remote. And I just have very fine tuning uh, over that process, um, which has been for me just pretty golden and you're you know, doing that routing in that box i'm doing all the routing in the box yeah like this is yeah. this is you know so so this is um you know that of, of, of it going in and out yeah and that's the i mean when you when you look at this here you know i'm going in and um you know if i push in one here um and you can see you know my input here is usb one yeah. um so that's the you know that's what i'm that's what i have there and so it's so, um it's, alex so i pretty much do the same as you but sort of in mirror in reverse i'm using a mix pre 6 right now and i have the usb returns for my computer coming in on three and four yeah and i'm on channel one and what i do is i set my channel one um to send to you pre-fade so i can screw around with the actual fader for my own local balance if i need right. to what i'm sending you is all determined by the gain control in the actual preamp so having That's that post-fade pre-fade sort of capability is great for all sorts of things, uh, including mixed minuses, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, Mickey? And yeah, um, what I typically set up for for, for folks with uh, mixed pre-3 is their, um, their return coming from the computer um, into 1 and 2 because uh, only channels 1 and 2 on the mixed pre-3 can be linked together. Um, yeah. I don't know if that's changed with the uh, additional two-channel um, plugin. But um, but yeah, on the mix pre six, I would have it reversed, uh, similar to Paul, wherein their mics, uh, their local mics, come in on channels one or channel one or channels one and two, and then the return coming from the computer on three and four. While you brought this up, Mickey, I don't know if this question was going to come up anyway. But while we're talking, we should talk about the mix pre three and plus two plugin while we're here, because I 
hope so, some of you probably realize we released firmware a couple of weeks ago, version nine. No one was expecting it at all. Everyone thought it was like a, <laughs> a product which was, you know, great and all, but it had <laughs> gone through its round of firmware updates. Uh, I think the previous firmware update was like about 18 months ago or something like that. Um, but um, yeah, we released version nine and the two big things there uh, were on the Mix Pre 3, Series 1 or 2, so this is also for Courtney, <laughs> um, you can um, expand the channel um, count on your Mix Pre 3 from a 3 ISO 5-track recorder to a 5 ISO 7-track recorder. And those extra input uh, channels 4 and 5 can be fed from your um, unbalanced um, auxin input oh, or it can be fed from usb so you know an ideal use case for four and five uh, for usb if you're using that as a return it means you don't have to eat up the other two the other three channels for that purpose which is significant i think and so, that will work on even the one with the puny fpga that i have huh i yes, didn't download but, version nine because i thought i couldn't install it so you can yes you can wow backward so, compatibility <laughs> Where we right. where where we can we will you know we're not going to yeah. artificially hamper something that way, um, so that's the plus three I've been in plus two on the mixed pre threes and then obviously we added an, an option for two channels of noise assist um, originally it was only one channel um, so you know it gives you and a that's for the mixed pre three or mixed pre three yes, or the, the two, two. The, the series two for all of them for all three models yeah the three six and ten. So it gives you a bit more flexibility in what you want to do there. Absolutely. Go ahead, Chris. Alex, I was curious when you showed yours, you're not first question, where are your headphones plugged into, Alex? My headphones are actually plugged into my mix pre. So okay. they're why don't you use input USB two so you can get a left and right out of your Mac? Because I don't care. Like you know, like 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 I mean really? it's mostly yeah, I mean I so um, if I if I take a second channel in, I mean when I so so here's the thing. I have another cable that sticks out of my Mac. When I want to listen to stereo, I actually move my headphones over to that one. So I for the mix pre is for me to. And the thing is, I use that the second channel is used primarily for my presentation machine to go back into the mix pre. So that this this USB pre two that you see below it that comes out of my presentation machine and that goes into the mix pre and then is returned back to the um, computer now. Oftentimes I'll use Dante for that, but the main thing, because I've got Dante sound card on all the machines, so I can pass those back and forth, but I've had issues where I get into it and suddenly Dante's not doing what I expect it to do. And so I need to have, like if I'm doing a presentation and I want to have video in the playback, I have an analog output that goes into the mix pre <laughs> that I can go use this as the sound as, as your output and boom, it works, you know, and I still have control over its volume and its mix and it's, you know, all those things that are, that are going in. And so that's why channel two is, is my, it, my second input from another computer, which in this case is the mix, mix, the USB pre two that sits right below it. Do you think now you could the, also uh, uh, use your 205 uh, with Dante output? Uh, yeah, and do the mix there if you want. So to. I will say that Dante Virtual Sound Card is works most of the time, but not all the time. And so, um, so I don't build hev more heavily into it. I use it as a convenience, but for things that I really need, I still have uh, cables. <laughs> so, 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 so um, and and I I use Dante very heavily in big projects, but with lots of hardware. Dante Dante Virtual Sound Card again is not 
for me, a hundred percent success rate. And so I don't, and, and sometimes I get into a situation where I'm like, anyway, that's another, that's another, that's a non-mix pre thing. But, but anyway, that's, uh, but that, that is, that's why I don't do that. Um, uh, yeah, go ahead, Jeff. I would love if uh, someone can show, uh, first of all, how this shows up to the computer. In other words, is it one single multi-channel device or does it actually show up as yeah, Chris can more show device that. in and out? And then is there a software app that you can use to do some of this configuration optionally or, or is everything done with the front controls on the device? Yeah, all set up on the MixPre is done from the front controls of the device which which are it's it's like a black magic when you first start not black magic the company but like it's like i'm like magical like you're like i'm so confused and, and then once you get into it it works really well i mean like you know now i'm just like the only thing that i get myself in trouble with is let me see if i cut this that i that i always do here is if i if i go in here and i go to uh, uh maybe i got it outputs and i'm setting my outputs here for some reason, I go in here and I have this set, and I always, um, uh, what I always want to hit home, I think, or whatever, or I always end up back out. Like I, I go, like I, I set this thing, and and it's just a weird, like when I get hit, to that screen. When yeah. you get to that screen, use the knob on the side instead of trying to touch it. It's too hard to touch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are screens like obviously it. It's got to be able to configure everything when it's mobile. But surely you guys considered and talked about the option to have an app that lets you optionally configure it on a computer it's just not a not enough demand or not a priority to do that um well you know we do have an app but it just doesn't run on a computer it's called wingman it's for android and ios is would a would an app on a tablet or a phone be oh yeah for that purpose oh yeah like, like we would, we would, that we would, yeah, an iOS app that, that did or Android app or whatever that did, that did control, that did all the things that front screen does would be massive. Wingman, we use Wingman um, to control. So we send out these mixed pre's with Mac minis and we put Wingman on the Mac mini. And that's how we see if we see levels. And that's also how we hit record uh, remotely um, when we're doing records. Um, so the Wingman is really useful. But if Wingman had all the features and we could sit there and r- route everything, oh, like that would be amazing. Yeah, yeah. I'd like pa- that too. <laughs> pa- Paul, yeah. the the weak link in the Mix Pre is the the screen and the user interface. It it suffers from. It's a product designed by geniuses for geniuses, and 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 you really got to like imagine your mother and say, "Okay, mom, let, let's hook this up." Like if you can't make your mom work it, you, you, you've missed the mark. And I and, and that might be a little exaggeration, but um, I think I think you have to. You have to get the geniuses to design for dumb people like me. I'd be a great, I'd be a great candidate. And it's <laughs> like, I wouldn't recommend the mix pre to most people I know because the user interface is daunting. So yeah, that is a, a very good point. Um, and you know, Chris, and we, I'm sure you're aware that there are a number of things we did in the UI to try and simplify it. For instance, there's your basic mode. Um, which sort of strips it down to a stereo recorder. There's like various custom modes, but those custom modes are actually very hard to get your head around unless you sort of really sort of um, yeah. study them. Um, there is another um, a plugin called the Reporter plugin, which strips it back even further than basic mode. So r- really there's actually no menus at all. All that functions is 
the record stop and play button and the volume controls. And it just then becomes a device you plug your mic into, you plug your headphone into, and away you go. I mean, that's as simple as it gets, really. Right. Uh, but as soon as you start to want to get into sort of routing, and actually that report upon you can actually configure the routing and and basically lock it down so that a user can't accidentally screw it up. Um, but as soon as you want any form of flexible routing, your mother is going to sort of keel over and want to go back. And- well, and and this gets back into the, you know, we took the, if we were able to take the USB, by the way, and just plug it into an Ethernet cable, <laughs> maybe, you know. Just, here we go. Then, then work just Alex, please. Then, then we get to then we get then we get full control over it remotely. <laughs> yeah, we've forbidden the word "just" and "should" in engineering. There were two words that are not allowed. It's, it's simple and easy. I'm sure. Either. I'm sure it'd yes. be simple and easy to do that. <laughs> uh, Sorry, I'm just, I just. But yeah, I mean, I do want to go back to this point of wingman enhancing wingman to uh, much more flexible, and it's something again we talk about internally. Yeah. A lot. I mean, if you take a look at SD Remote now, which is the app for controlling the 8 Series, that's far more fully featured. You can do all sorts of routing and right. uh, output monitoring, bus control, all this sort of stuff from there. And uh, there's more to and come. You can write faders as well on, on S. Sorry. And being able you can to write faders as well on SD, SD Remote. Sense. And, you know, uh, Wingman, um, I'm not going to say never on Wingman, but I guess that's what you're looking for. Uh, in terms of adding more control there, whether we can get every single menu setting into an app, um, I don't know, but uh, I know what you're looking for. Yeah, it's oh, funny. You, you, I'm sorry. W- would you imagine this software being being updated p- before or after the Mix Pre One is released? <laughs> sorry. Um, yeah. So the uh, so it took me a second to, <laughs> to see that. Yeah. The uh, uh, anyway, let's. We have so many questions stacking up for the for the. Bring up one other thing in terms of remote control, and this yeah. is a bit of a hack, but I've I've done it. Anyone ever heard of USB stick? Um, and the yeah. USB remote app on the f- iPhone or Android? No. It's basically the USB stick is a Bluetooth uh, USB keyboard emulator. So essentially, mm-hmm. this is an app that sends USB keyboard commands via Bluetooth to your Mix Pre. It's just a little dongle that sticks inside. And you can actually, with the app, create macros to do anything um, using key, USB keyboard mm. commands. So I can actually get to any menu and make any setting from my phone. Um, I can even do game control and stuff like that. Yes, it is a bit of a hack, but if you, you're bored one day... <laughs> well, and you can, you can connect these to MIDI boards, right? Well, you can, but they're very much... Um, specific yeah we do support usb midi but uh there it's not uh, like an open protocol like mcu um we have like three or four different controllers we support like the nano control the so MIDI. it's not a true midi it's not it's not just pure yeah we, midi exactly we're, we're actually supporting the protocols that these controllers um support and they're like custom and they're not really using mcu Right, because that would be the way around it, like without having to do anything else. Because then we could send MIDI controls, uh, you know, MIDI interfaces to the to the Mix Pre, um, and that could be done remotely. Like so, anything that the MIDI controller could do, we could do if we had, uh, if we figured out a way to do that protocol. And then you wouldn't you wouldn't have to do anything other than well, we yeah. have, I'm sure you'd have to do something, but <laughs> yeah, simple I mean, and easy. We can entertain the idea of supporting yeah. MC on the Mix Pre as well in the future. Yeah. 
Okay. okay. We've got tons of questions stacking up. Uh, if you're if you're in if you're watching the show, make sure to vote. Uh, you know, so vote questions up and down. Uh, we're not going to get to all of them, um, but we're going to get to as many as we can um, because we've a lot of them. We had a great discussion for the first half hour, but now we're going to jump into the into the questions. Let's go into the first question. Tony Tang in Chicago writes in, tell us about what USB controllers, USB MIDI faders, mute foot switches you use with your mix pre. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah. Um, so we talked, I talked about it a little bit in the lab last week, but I use the, the Korg and I use one Korg to talk to the mix pre to do mix pre things. And I do one Korg to talk to sound desk to do sound desk things. And I think this will show, because Alex asked about this, this is how you uh, route the, or this is how you, in order to get the, the most functionality of your mix pre, you want to go into the uh, audio MIDI setup and, and choose choose more inputs and outputs. I think it defaults at like two by two, and that's just hampering. That's no fun. Uh, go ahead, Mickey. Yeah, I mostly use the Korg Nano Control as well, although um, my use case for the MixPre um, is more of a backup recorder in the cart. So how I remotely control it is to um, send timecode out of my primary recorder. On the cart, it's usually an 888, sometimes a 688, um, and feed timecode out of the 688 when I'm rolling So and have the, the MixPre set to automatically roll when it starts receiving timecode. So that's how I remotely control the MixPre. That's great. Um, next question. Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida writes in, can you purchase a Mix Pre 3.2 with Noise Assist plugin pre-installed? I would like to ship these to execs that are not very tech savvy. Um, pre-installed, Paul? No, they don't. Um, and I wouldn't do that. I mean, to be honest with you, so we have, I think I have, uh, oh, and I know, I think we have 10 or 11 of these Mix Pre's that we use and they have Noise Assist in them, but what we do is it's not just having the noise assist added to them. We set up all the routing and all the presets and everything else that are all ready to go for that person. And then we send them out. So I would say I wouldn't try to drop ship from sound devices or from B&H or wherever you're going to buy it directly to an executive. I would get that mix pre in, get it set up the way you know it should be set up because it is going to be a specific routing. Put the noise, you know, install noise assist and license it and then send it out to them. I, I, that would be my recommend. It's it, there's enough things to do, as Chris pointed out, uh, to make that happen. To make that needed. Go ahead, Paul. You know, there might be um, if you buy through a dealer, you might be able to come to an arrangement with your local dealer to set that all up for you. If that's a very specific, yep. and they'd take care of it. Um, but we wouldn't do it directly from sound devices. And you could, and you could even probably send the dealer your preset. You know, like you can just roll a, you know, load a, a setting, you know, load a setup. Uh, into it. That's what we did. We got it working on one and then just copied it to the other ones um, to make sure that they were all the same. Um, next question. Pazma Gujar in Cape Town, South Africa writes in, learned to view mix pre-chain as inputs, channels, buses, and outputs. In buses seems to include left-right stereo out and headphone left-right. Explain the concept buses within the context of a mix pre. Who wants to jump like on that? <laughs> Well, I can talk about it. There's the um, that that's true. There are buses and there are outputs. Um, so you've got your really your only um, recordable mix buses are the left and right buses. Um, the left and right outputs are your physical outputs, which can be routed from any ISO channel or the mix buses or 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 
directly from aux in or USB inputs. Um, uh, the headphone um, output is basically directly hardwired to the headphone left and right mix bus. Um, and they can be configured again with any sort of combination of pre and post fade sources as well. So, yeah, I mean, you can configure to your heart's content. I don't know if there's much more to say about that. Right, go ahead, uh, Mickey. And yeah, I'm I'm showing right now the uh, where you can set your your um, routing for your headphone bus. So I guess sort of access your your monitor bus in this uh, in this sense. And then you can also go to your out outputs, and then go to say your left output bus, and select which which uh, source or sources are being fed into your left output output bus and right output bus. It's also important to to note that the left and right output buses are separate from the main left and right mix bus, which is always being fed by your input channels when they are faded up. And where where was the pre the headset the headset preset is selected down below, right? So the headset preset, you go into your menu, and then it's in the upper left uh, corner here. So you can standard is just your left and right the stereo mix, but you're gonna also say just let me go back to first page, listen to your your left right mix, but some down to mono. You could listen to your USB one and USB two, or you can also go and edit a preset here and and uh, route that accordingly. Get Great. get which, whichever channels you want into your your headphone bus. I tell you, I look at that HP preset and I think I'm talking to my printer. That's good. I, I, I can't. See, I, I look at it. I'm like, oh, it's so nice. It's a, I can see everything. <laughs> but HP just feels like I'm talking to a Hewlett Packard printer for some reason. I, I can't in my mind make that mean headphones for some reason. It should be noted that the physical left and right output, they can be selected to sort of like any source. But there is sort of like a level of mixing there as well. It's um, not a full uh, mixer matrix, but you could, for instance, mix, select a number of channels and like an AUX input and a USB input and sort of like sum them all to that um, physical output. Um, there are some limitations like you can't mix actual the left and right mix bus with um, ISO channels. It'll sort of like cancel one when you select the other, but there is a level of mixing there as well. That's great. Next question. Tony Chang in Chicago writes in, uh, what do you wish the Mix Pre could do that it can't do today, if anything? Good question. Remote control. <laughs> For me, you know, like just because I, it's, it's because I send these out uh, to people. I mean, that's the primary use is sending them out to folks. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Run for four hours on a, uh, on four pin light uh, <laughs> batteries. There you go. Um, are there any? Are there any? I um, mean, I wish that. that sorry, for, as a uh, and I, I know that space is 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 important um, or hard to, hard to deal with, but but I I would say that I would love to have two balanced outs of my mix pre three, <laughs> like you know just two tr tr uh, ta threes out of there. The you know the unbalanced outputs. It's just that that's the probably the biggest, and admittedly, it's the biggest reason I go. Oh, I wish I had a ten, you know, because, but but I you know the mix pre three. If it had two balanced outs that I could route to, it would be life changing. Like that's probably the biggest thing that would make an impact on on for me on a mix pre three. Go ahead, John. I think uh, being able to have multiple virtual devices show up within like Windows. I know within the Mac it's a little bit easier, but Windows doesn't have a good way to handle that. And you know, outside of a plug uh, software that supports Osseo, 
Right. Can you sort of uh, just explain that a little bit more? Yeah, so if you're um, familiar with uh, like Elgato or GoXLRs products, they actually create inside Windows multiple devices, and then you're able to mix those devices from within their app. Uh, you can do, um, you know, essentially only USB 1 and 2 show up to Windows natively. Otherwise, it requires the ASIO drivers in order for it to function. Okay. I would, I, you know, I think that, I know this will sound crazy, but I would love this to be a button. This little, like, this little thing right here, like an action, like a macro button. Like, just that I could push it and define what that means. You know, for that, that would be, uh, and the way I'd probably use it is a mute button. <laughs> so, so anyway. So you, Alex, you needed to get yourself a Mix Pre 6 because it's got the star button. I know, I know, I know. I'm, 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 I got, anyway, uh, I got so many mixed pre-threes. All right, now, next question. Hasma Kajar in Cape Town, South Africa writes in, in production with mixed pre, when should I have stereo out or headphones in my audio chain as IEM talent and as producer and engineer? Go ahead, Mickey. So, yeah, in this use case, I would certainly uh, leave the actual dedicated headphone out for whoever is operating the MixPre because that bus is a specific monitor bus. You can solo channels into that headphone out, but if you need to, without um, without um, affecting what goes out to program or your what goes out to your main left and right mix um, and use the uh, stereo out, the left and right out to feed um, your talent's ears. Next question. Robert Choji in Los Angeles, California writes in, could you please discuss the battery options for running a Mix Pre 6.2 for about seven or eight hours? Thanks. Go ahead, Mickey. Yeah, in a, in a bag rig, my uh, uh, power option of choice is uh, these eSmart batteries. Um, this is from manufactured by Inspired Energy, although sound devices and also remote audio and also audio route uh, have uh, rebranded versions, but all of these are created by Inspired Energy. Um, these are proper production-grade batteries, and I run it through a battery distribution system so that they can power not only my recorders, mixers, but also wireless receivers off of this. Those 12 and, volts out, Mickey? What uh, it's, uh, it's, it's lithium, so it's 14.4. Yes, 14.4, 14. 14. okay. And the uh, and I use the a lot of the, the small rig 99s. Um, you know, for those things, it has USB as well as uh, barrels and so on and so forth for a lot of different power su su supplies. In fact, sometimes I hook it to the to the mat to the sled that it goes onto for, uh, and then I have more outputs. So um, th those have worked really well for me for quite some time. Next question. Ike Potter in Hanover, Germany, writes in paid apps. For example, Noise Assist are tied via the serial number to one device only. If one owns several mix pre's, there's no way to inactivate or delete an instance from one mix pre and use the, the plugin on another. Will we ever see an update to enable that? I guess that's a question for Paul. Yeah, um, probably not. It's. The way uh, the, not, the, the way the whole thing's designed, it's very much tied to a serial number. But so uh, you know, for we are fairly flexible. Like if a, a unit was bought and you bought a noise assist plugin for a particular serial number and that got stolen or broke in the very early days, we do our best to try and sort of help you migrate it to another unit. We're not going to sort of um, be draconian in that sense. John, yeah, I mean, I I don't mind this. I don't like the idea of um needing to call home in order to use something 
if we like, I don't have internet somewhere, I don't have to worry about it. This just works. And so it's just one less thing to worry about. Yeah. Uh, that's, uh, that's what, it, that's how it works now, which makes it work well. Yep. Next question. John Snyder in Reno, Nevada writes in, for home studio use, most of the panel highly recommended the Mix Pre line. Mickey generally steers people away from it. Take a moment to discuss each side's argument. Go ahead, Mickey. <laughs> so, so yeah, um, the the Mix Pre product line, as well as uh, most of Sound Devices um, product uh, products in general, are really designed to be um, field mixers slash field recorders. Um, while the Mix Pre line does have um, uh, audio interface capabilities. It's it's not um, as we've discussed earlier here. It's not uh, I guess the most intuitive, um, especially in terms of the user interface, as a, uh, an audio interface into the computer. Um, there are what I would typically steer people to uh, within the price range of a Mix Pre three or Mix Pre six would be say the Apollo line, wherein it does give you. Um, a lot of control in terms of cue mixes or what goes out to your to your ears. It gives you more control if you ever you're in a situation where you need to record VO or or music. There is a te- dedicated the talkback uh, bus that is fully routable, um, and also the UI instead of having to uh, going back to the UI instead of having to do all the configuration on the uh, one inch or two inch uh, LCD can be done on a computer that can store all these presets, can be controlled um, remotely if need need be. Um, so that's my my uh, my thought in terms of MixPre specifically as a user interface. And as a field recorder, it's great. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I don't think I would recommend it to m- most people. And I think I mentioned that earlier. It's kind of like... Um, it's kind of like buying a Jeep with great off-road capabilities um, when you never will take it off the pavement, but you bought it because it has a great air conditioner, maybe. you know. And so I bought it for, for the noise assist. Um, if noise assist was a plug-in, I may not have bought it. Um, it's, it's a difficult item to set up. I could have never been successful without Mickey's help. And so that's what I tell people. I go, you know, you got to be careful. This you're you're jumping in the deep end, and you're gonna have to learn how to swim. So if you're not willing to take on that challenge, I would highly recommend somebody live with the noise and and just get something simpler. For me, I have a hundred terabytes of hard drive stacked up around me and a bunch of fans. That's why I have it. Were you gonna say something, Paul? Uh, yeah, I was just going to go back to Mickey's comment about talkback, you know, and the flexibility of that on the Apollo. There, I don't know if you know, but in the Mix Pre 10, the last firmware release, we actually do have a fully routable slate mic, which you could configure for talkback if you wanted to. That's great. Yeah, and you know, for for me, I think that the thing is the noise assist is so powerful. Is that I, you know, we don't send Mix for the reason that they're too complex and I can't control them remotely. We do not send mix pre's out for the podcast that I do on Fridays um, because we are, you know, we're just like, I don't know how I can, every time we do it, it's just hard to talk to someone through how to get the thing set up. We've set it up and I test it then I send it to them and then there's still, there's still some confusion there about how to make that work. Um, so that has been a, um, you know, that's a challenge, but I will say that half of the shows, I think to myself, Oof, 
this would have been really good with a mix pre. <laughs> like, like this would have, this would have, it would have been nice to record locally. It would have been nice to, you know, do all those things. And so that's that's the thing that we're always struck against is is trying to, you know, but figuring out a way to remote control it would be a big, yeah. big deal. I mean, I get that, Alex. I mean, one thing to, if you're looking for a, I don't know if you've tried the reporter plugin that simplifies. The problem it is, is that that we're not doing reported. I need all the routing. Like so the, the so I need the routing and the noise assist and the and the stuff that's there. I just need it to be I just need to simplify what they can do. You know, yeah, you know like that stuff is all there still. Oh, so the reporter just, Yeah, I mean it, it's it's all there under the hood. You configure it the way you want it to be. Uh, so they don't have they just don't have access to it. Oh, that's really cool. Okay. Have a play with it. You might find it will work for you in some situations. Yeah. Sometimes it may not, but uh, it's worth investing. No, yeah, I'll definitely check that. I didn't realize, I thought it just dumbed it down. I thought, but you can set it and then set it to reporter mode and then all they can do is turn things up and down. The idea behind it is that a broadcaster is yeah. is the master of the device. They set it up, they configure it, do all the routing, do everything, and then send it out. That's great. All right, all right. We'll, we'll talk more about that. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, does the reporter mode record in 32-bit float? Yes, oh. it does. That's if you set it that I, way. Yeah. If you set it up that way, yeah. Uh, next question. TJ Worrell in Minneapolis, Minnesota writes in, discuss the best way to get analog audio out of a Mix Pre 6 V2. Is there a more cost-effective alternative? Go ahead, Mickey. Yeah, with the Mix Pre 6 uh, line, you, your only outputs, analog outputs, are the uh, the stereo out as well as the headphone out. So um, you can take your unbalanced feed out of the stereo out, or if you need to convert that into a balanced connection, you could use something like um, a uh, radial engineering, um, I think they call it the AV2 or Pro AV2, to get the balance, uh, to convert the unbalanced signal into a balanced uh, line level signal. Yep. Um, next question. David Brady in New York, New York, writes in, for the absolute beginner, what's the entry point to mix pre end of year spending coming up? I will say that if you have the budget, I would get the mix pre 10 because I can, because of the analog, because of the balanced outputs. <laughs> you know, like that's the, like that's the thing that for me, what shifts me to the 10 is not so much that I need all those channels, it's that I need those balanced outputs um, from the 10. And that's the thing that I, you know, that if it, Probably the biggest upgrade to the to the three and the six that would have me like ditch the one that I have to buy another one that looks almost identical would be uh, uh, having balanced outputs. Go ahead, Mickey. Yeah, I often say to folks in the community, like if you think you, you need the Mix Pre 3, you actually need the Mix Pre 6. If you think you need the Mix Pre 6, you actually need the 10. Yeah. If you think you need the 10, you actually need an 823. But if you're getting an 823, you'd probably go with an 888 because of Dante. And once you're in an 888, you might as well just get a Scorpio. <laughs> All right, next question. <laughs> So in other words, forget the mix pre. So you just direct to the Scorpio. You know, I ran the first. I ran the first year of this show on a Scorpio. Anyway, so it was great having all the Dante just sitting on the desk. Um, uh, next, next question. Jason Papafasolo in London, England, writes in: All your microphone sounds absolutely fantastic. I can't seem to be able to replicate the same with my mix pre three. Do you use any audio processing to apply EQ and compressor? Go ahead, John. I think most of us are going directly into the mix pre and not to the PC. Um, you know, my room, it sounds a little bit roomy. I don't have any treatment here, but a lot of people have put a lot of time and energy into treating the room first and then having a good microphone close to the source. Those things are going to call solve 90% of your problems. Yeah, go ahead, Mickey. Yeah, exactly what John said. Um, solve it early. Uh, started with a, a decent microphone 
uh, the good distance, good sounding room. Um, and in terms of my pipeline, I'm going through a good old Sound Devices 302 very reliable box. Um, and uh, it's going through quite a bit of an audio chain, but the only processing that's happening is a bit of delay for, uh, for matching video a bit. Go ahead, Chris. I'm not doing any processing. I think the main thing, Jason, is that, um, you know, audio is, is very much bound to physics. And you cannot, there's no knob, there's no magic that you can do to fix mic placement if your mic is too far away. Uh, Alex is very comfortable seeing microphones. I, I'm a little bit less, but um, ch check your mic placement. It all starts there. Yeah, I drive people to to show their mics mostly because because I understand physics and I just know that the, that there's a there's a distance that gets the most that, that gets the highest quality and usually it's within about four inches. It's it's more than three, but less than six. <laughs> it was, it's the, you, best, the best sounding. Alex, I'll tell you, oftentimes, you know, uh, some, one of my clients, they have a thing for that, um, the, the blue Yeti thing, and they'll yeah. send them out to people all the time. And I'll, and I'll listen to it. I go, now, are you, are you using the mic we sent you? Yeah. Well, where is yeah. it? And they do this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like way somewhere. <laughs> if you have somewhere to lean out of frame, it's way to too far away. Yeah. Put it right in front of you. Yeah, no, absolutely. Go ahead, uh, Mitchell. How do you do with a situation where you're using a uh, sound technologies, uh, studio technologies, uh, as a as a uh, mute switch, and you're stuck with that preamp, and you want to use the preamp on the mix pre. I guess you're kind of stuck. Yeah, I mean, the other addition that would be great on a mix pre is to have the mix pre plus or whatever that had Dante in it would be nice to have. You know, then I'd be able to pass to and from. But you know, I do wish that I had the 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 preamp from the the mix pre instead of the going into the two hundred five. But I'm too superstitious. So, um, you know, I go to the two hundred five to the mix pre analog and I just you know it just works um, and I and I don't know how anyone on a show like ours part of why everything sounds good is a lot of us are muting pretty aggressively now some people are using software I don't know how anyone does a show every day without having a hardware mute like I you know so I have the, the 205 which is about the same price as the mix pre um, that uh, that is uh, that that I'm my foot my hand during the show if you're wondering where this hand is sitting, it's sitting on the mute button and I'm just constantly turning it on and off while I'm talking. Um, go ahead, Mickey. Yeah, I just want to say I, in Zoom, I use the command shift A shortcut and it works pretty well. Um, in terms of uh, running through, say, uh, an, an answer box like the 205, um, the, out, the mic level output on it is just a, a loop out. So you're not running through any of the pre's and the, and the, and the studio technologies. Um, and just... Going back to, um, uh, I mentioned earlier, the reliable Sound Devices 302. I brought my 16-year-old um, Sound Devices uh, 7440 out for the first time in years last Monday and recorded a, a, a sit-down interview for BBC, and it was worked well. So that's Sound Devices gear for you. Yeah, absolutely, and and yeah, I don't do any the the all the only EQ that I do is that that I have a, a mic at the proper distance. I have blankets all the way the part you can't see, <laughs> so there's hanging blankets, you know, down because I'm still working on building something nice. But I just have sound blankets all the way around me, um, and then I have a very complex background, uh, ba both background and foreground, and so that is what really makes it work. And then and then a little bit of noise assist to get rid of some of the fans. Um, next question. Tlaloc Lopez Waterman in Albuquerque, New Mexico writes, and I use my Mix Pre 6 for both an audio interface and for recording audio on the same uh, or on some of my video shoots. 
What should I set up in my recording presets versus my audio interface preset? Sorry to ask about a Mix Pre 6 on Mix Pre 3 day. It's a Mix Pre day. You, don't, you can ask about Mix Pre 6 or even 10. Uh, go ahead, Mickey. So yeah, one of the important things to check when you're transitioning between using the the mix pre uh, as a an audio interface and also as a field recorder is to make sure that um, the sample rate is what you intend it to be. Because when you connect the mix pre to a computer, it follows whatever your computer tells it to be. Um, so you want to make sure you're at 48 or if you're 48 kilohertz or whatever uh, sample rate you you need to be at. Another thing is um, in a location shoot, you want metadata, metadata, metadata. Um, so go into your project, create a new project for the day, name it whatever is appropriate. I typically go with the project name, um, underscore the date, underscore day one or day two or whichever date of the project it is. I do that for every single shooting day. Um, and then also go into your, um, let, me, let me create a new project there. Just put a name in. Uh, da, 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 da. Just and this is where keyboard that is the name. Yeah. Oh, I don't. I don't have a, a an SD card in at the moment, but um, fill out like I say. If you have, if you have Wingman, uh, fill out all the the metadata forms there. I'm going to open up Wingman on my I iPad here so that um, I can show you that that page. So you can program this both on the Mix Pre and also on Wingman. You can fill out all the metadata information there, but then the production name, the location, all that information, as well as name your name your channels. You can name each channel there. So so I can say channel one is uh, uh, my boom one and make sure metadata is complete. That's one, one thing with location shoots. You want all the meta metadata as possible. You're going to say something, Paul? Yeah, the other thing that I'd say if you're doing like a field recording is to put the pre-roll buffer on. Yeah. Because uh, there's always unpredictable things going on that you might want to capture. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Next question. How long before we go to the next question? How long is the pre-roll buffer? What's the maximum of ten seconds? Depends on yeah. sample rate. So forty-eight k ten, ninety-six k five, one ninety-two k two. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, next question. Hazma Kajar in Cape Town, South Africa, writes in: In Chris Fenwick's setup, his setup includes sound desk. With my setup of mix pre loop back and acquiring a Korg, do I still need sound desk? Go ahead, Chris. Hazma, to be clear. You don't need any of this stuff. Uh, it's it's as huge. Need is a big for, word. Yeah, need <laughs> is a giant word. This is. I was telling somebody, I think, in the pre-show that one of the things that I like about my sound desk setup is it gives me individual control per app, almost app type. You know, browsers and media playback and stuff like that. And I use it all day long. It's so easy to just lift my hand. Oh, here I could show you on this picture here. Here's my mouse. And if I want to turn down Zoom, I don't hear you guys now. It's just that easy. If I want to turn up stuff, you know, it's, do I, but do I need it? God, no, I don't need it. It sure is handy though. Yeah. Go ahead, Mickey. Yeah. I think um, the incorporate, incorporating sound desk into the pipeline is um, with how, at least how uh, Chris was demonstrating to us so last week and the week prior um, is really more for if you're using your mix pre uh, very extensively as your primary audio interface on your computer, like for for what you're hearing and also what you're broadcasting out to the world. Um, in, in a scenario we, where you are solely relying on the mix pre for your mixing capabilities and just putting out the program feed out, 
um, it's not that crucial, at least with how um, Chris uh, demonstrated his setup. Next question. Samuel Nordvik in Norway writes in, is the Mix Pre the panel's preferred audio interface mostly because of noise assist or does it have other advantages over traditional interface? Go ahead, John. Yeah, I like that it has uh, noise assist, obviously, is, is one of the big selling points. It has a lot of gain on tap. It's very clean preamps, solid sounding preamps. Um, I also like that it has physical buttons and it's easy to manipulate. I'm using the Mix Pre uh, 6, so I have the nice star button which gives me that access to solo mute. mute. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. I did use mine for a while, but because it's an old mix pre a one, I couldn't put noise assist on it. And uh, I went to the Rodecaster Pro 2, uh, which has fairly decent preamps, not quite as good as the sound devices, but um, uh, it has much better headphone mixing. I was able to get sound, a side tone easily into my ear, and have a separate headphone output matrix for my speakers, et cetera, et cetera, with four headphone outputs that you can program anything in and out. It makes it a lot more flexible for me. So my Mix Pre 3 is sidelined at the moment. Yeah, and I, I will say that I, I kind of summarily um, filter out everything that doesn't have noise assist because I just I just can't, like I need it. for I just use it all the time. Um, so but I will say that there's a lot of other things in the mix pre that I that I enjoy all the routing and all the very all the various controls and the, the a lot of USB in and outs and so on and so forth are all things that I think are valuable. But I but as soon as I don't have an, uh, some kind of noise assist to to and I don't consider most people's noise reduction tools to be useful, <laughs> like you know, like I turn them on and I'm like, okay, well that's not it. So um, so I think that that is a you know I, I you know so I think that that it's a it's a mixture of both of those. But but noise assist is definitely like table stakes for me. Um, next question. Robert Choji in Los Angeles writes in, for the panelists, can you describe your mix pre-workflow on location? Right, go ahead, Mickey. So yeah, for for um, our use case, we typically uh, use a mix pre in a cart as a backup recorder or um, in a bag in the in the van or truck just in case uh, we need we need to pull out a, a backup. And the cart... We uh, set up the mix free so that it uh, it takes timecode um, via the BNC input. This is a mix free ten, so the timecode comes in via BNC. So we have timecode mode uh, as BNC, and and then when we go to the record menu, um, we can set the record trigger to um, start recording when it when the mix free sees timecode coming in, and uh, that's how we're able to automatically have a backup recording running. That's great. Paul, thank you so much for your time, for joining our little panel here. Pleasure. It's been really great to see you all. And yeah. uh, it's to the next time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll drag you in a, a couple of times. It's, really, it's always really a pleasure to have you here. Um, and thanks to the rest of the panel who just made this a great, I mean, it's just something I feel like we, we want to keep on injecting. The big advantage that we have is we have a persistent community. And a lot of us are using many of the same devices. And by having a session like this, more people know it, which means more people are answering answering questions in Discord, and more people are figuring out, and more people are asking more questions. Uh, definitely keep on asking in Dis in Discord as well as in our show, asking more mixed pre questions, and we'll keep on making sure that you understand how those use or other in interfaces. We have a lot of interfaces that all of us use, but the idea is to keep injecting that knowledge back into the group, um, which means we can support new people as they come in. Um, but thank you so much to the panel for uh, all of your contribution. Uh, thanks to the, in, uh, the all the producers. 
ton of questions. Like we didn't even get to the, you know, we still left some on the on the field. We just couldn't get to all of them. But we really, I mean, just really, really great questions to drive the conversation forward. Really appreciate your contribution. Remember, you can ask questions 24-7 at askofficehours.global, and then we throw them into the next day's uh, general question bin um, and answer those. So go ahead and use that any time of the day. Um, and thank you to the incredible team that makes this happen. This is definitely not as you know, the your vanilla Zoom. And then we have a lot of people out there that are developing hard you know, software, configuring hardware, um, you know, developing systems, managing who's going to show up, making sure people are ready to show up, uh, and then actually cutting this show and managing all the questions, managing. There's so much going on every single day, seven days a week. We haven't missed a day since March 25th, 2020. So, and an incredible team on the back end that makes that happen. Uh, we traveled 94,000 miles answering all these questions today. And that's what, that's what it would have taken for us if we were all in the same, if we were going to, oh, we're going to go to Paul. Now we're going to go to Mickey and ask him. Uh, uh, 94,000 miles, that's 152,000 kilometers. And that is 748 million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into After Hours. Great having you, Paul. That's good. Thanks, Paul. Very Thanks, cool. Paul. Tell my that USB stick. Oh, what was What's, the US? What was the USB it, stick? What's mix the brand? pre one. That's the ticket. What, what was the USB stick? Uh, it was the Bluetooth. Yeah, the USB. dongle thing. What's that Bluetooth called? Bluetooth virtual a, keyboard adapter or something. Yeah. Is that right, Paul? Oh, yeah, but we'll USB stick. We'll find it. Really? We'll find it. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll ping Paul. All right. Alex, Pink the ball. first thing I did when I got my Mix Pre 6 is I set it up so I could listen to my Mac in stereo. I'm shocked you're listening to your Mac in mono. When I need to rent, do it in stereo, I listen to it in stereo. When I want to listen to it, when I, when I, when I, I have another, I have another well, now that jack you have that. two extra inputs, if you upgrade your firmware, uh, you can. Yeah. Just saying. I could. I could. have to go up. You don't have to like. Un, well, un, could, 